0: Welcome to the Week in IndyCar on the Marshall Pro Podcast, brought to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers, oh and we're not done, and torontomotorsports.com and our super, super awesome pals at Bell Racing Helmets, located in Speedway, Indiana. Lots of great stuff this week coming out of Toronto, which based on the very informal metric of reader comments on racer.com a number of folks thought it was the most boring IndyCar race of the year, an absolute snoozer if you happen to also catch Sunday's British Grand Prix boy, I make, make it pretty hard to wage any counter argument knowing how good the British GP was Toronto race was certainly not one of the finest that I have seen there, would also say that guess it really depends on your criteria and if it's folks fighting over first place as I use a lot of words starting with the letter F in a row then yeah Toronto offered almost nothing if not zero I guess in my evolution as a race fan and observer separate from working in the sport my entire life if passes for the lead are the only thing that would make me happy, then I guess I would be grumpy quite often, and not just limited to IndyCar, just about every form of the sport. I was very intrigued by the amount of passing attempts and just outright passes that took place throughout the field behind our runaway winner, Simon Paginot. Uh Lots of good stuff there. I saw some very cheeky moves going on in turn three, which I hadn't seen folks really fight that hard trying to go around the outside. The incident between Ed Carpenter racing teammates, Ed Jones and Spencer Piggott really stood out to me as a very, a really interesting one. And I think it might've been due to the really, really tough time that folks seem to have trying to make passes. The fact that Spencer fought that, so long really stood out to me as a unique thing i know he was grumpy what the heck my teammate just put me into the wall one angle in particular on the top side of the hill as they rounded three came up and we're getting ready to make the left-hander really showed that ed in making that pass went very deep into the corner ran wide definitely not hugged up against the wall And as a result, Spencer, who did not want to let his teammate by, decided to stay in the fight, really didn't have much room to maneuver on the outside. And then as a product of both fighting his teammate up the hill instead of conceding the place and Ed running a bit wider than optimal and giving Spencer very little space to back out of things, two ended up coming together. And I just thought that was a very, an interesting evolution of drivers on a track where, even though a lot of it's been repaved in recent years, you can see that normal passing opportunities seem to have come down. Therefore, making drivers have to try some extraordinary things to get by. Hinch, for example, popping down the inside, headed to turn five, I believe really desperate last second move that we saw and it required a little bit of co-signment, uh, co-signing, uh, in order to make that happen without incident. And, you know, I don't know. I don't have any great wisdom on what we need to do with Toronto to make it better. You'll hear in the conversation with Sebastian Bordet coming up momentarily that I don't know. Um, There's something off about Toronto for me, having watched this race for many decades. There's just something off. And that's a very non-scientific, non-helpful description. That's not something I could offer to a Jay Fry or someone else at IndyCar to make it better for the future. Just, hmm. Street courses are not always known for tons and tons of passing. I get that. In particular, Toronto just seems to be a little bit locked down more than usual, I think especially since the most recent configuration change. All this, I believe, coming back to a number of folks based on that very informal metric of article comments, which Sebastian told me to never read, uh, that, yeah, Toronto might not have been everything we'd hoped for. Also interesting for me in recognizing that gone back to back events where there was one person who delivered the almighty SmackDown at road America. We obviously had Colton Herta on pole, but if we look at who was really just a monster from start to finish, that was Alexander Rossi that came true in the race. He won by a million seconds. Toronto was the clean sweep. Basically of Simon Pagino had it from the moment cars turned their opening laps Friday morning until the very end on Sunday, barring some sort of strange outcome during the race. There was pretty much nothing I could think of where Simon would not be in full control, and that's what it ended up being. Obviously, towards the end, Scott Dixon closed in a bit, but it really did not look like Simon was in any true jeopardy. So now we're headed to Iowa, a place where... We've seen the very same thing happened uh, more than once in recent years where someone, at least in the race, wouldn't necessarily say in practice and qualifying, but definitely in the race, someone's car is so darn good that they make a mockery out of everyone else. So that'll be something to keep an eye on here Saturday night under the lights in Iowa. Could we go three races in a row with one clearly defined dominant driver And who would that be? Another thing that I've enjoyed about the Iowa Oval, it's not like we could say there's one team that has owned the joint. That baton seems to have been passed around a little bit. So, yeah, a little bit of lack of predictability. Feels like it's been a little while since the Ganassi team has really held an edge in an event no Dixie coming off of a podium here at Toronto fifth before that in Wisconsin had that win at the second round at Detroit. You know, He's been on the podium. I think five, six times this year, all good stuff. Just not sure if we've seen a breakout event for Dixon this year. Wonder if Iowa could be that opportunity. Then we have a few others that might be primed for a statement making event. Just looking through the top 10 or so, Graham Rahal, I think, might be the person that really jumps out as someone who could surprise us. Graham being up front, never a surprise. Just the last, keep in mind, the last two years now, uh, we've had a new race engineer for him. And if we dial things back, I guess, starting in through the end of 2017... When he was paired with Eddie Jones, the relationship they had, the relationship they had built and the consistency that came from that really allowed us to go into most events thinking Graham was going to be in the hunt for, if not a podium, possibly a win. We saw last year with the move to Tom German as his race engineer that there were flashes of that, but chemistry was off from the beginning. They didn't want to say that uh it was acknowledged towards the end of the year and that's not speaking ill of of tom or graham just hey man didn't work (laughs) i've been that race engineer before where clearly i was not going to get that driver to the promised land so no harm there this year with the awesome squirrel is his nickname alan mcdonald in place with graham i believe those two can do wonderful things i mean graham has been fourth a couple of times he has i believe one podium so far this year doesn't look like the two of them have completely clicked yet or as a tandem found what graham needs to be that effective threat everywhere they go again i was such a place where it's almost a roll the dice of who's going to be really really badass part of me thinks graham might be in the frame there obvious one is will power if we're just talking need, one of our questions here that I'll get to, um, saving my questions, the Q&A you've sent in for me for the end, because I think I have five five pages, maybe six. Um, one of them's is about willpower. And, oh, yeah, was texting with our boy Willie P., uh, DJ Willie P., right after Toronto, and just telling him, hey, man, keep your head up. Uh, don't let this stuff sink in. It's very much a mental game for Everyone's favorite Australian. So I'll get to that a little bit later. But yeah, if someone needs a breakthrough, break out, break everything type weekend, I think our man, Mr. Power, is probably at the top of the list just to get out of the funk that has been surrounding him. Championship, uh, I mean, (laughs) 434 points now for New Garden. Power is at 306 approximately 125 back Uh, that's a big number with six races left to go know that obviously laguna is going to be double points but will's kind of in that championship has set sail category sitting here fifth in points uh directly above him we have scott dixon 348 so within definitely within a hundred points of new garden. Really? You look at the realistic group of folks who'll be vying for a title. It's those in the top four, just because of the 100 points or less gap with six races left to run. Big new garden up front Rossi, very close behind him four behind Pagino now back in the frame in Scott Dixon from power and fifth on down. It is, a. Uh, Quote, thoughts and prayers to turn their season around and have any real hope of becoming a title contender. Beyond that, got some really fun stuff going on with our friends at torontomotorsports.com. It's great to see how well-received their booth was at the Toronto Indy event last weekend. And one thing for sure that I loved seeing, if you happen to catch any, of what Robert Wickens was doing, uh, both in the hand control Acura NSX that he drove, also some of the interviews. You might have seen <laughs> just a really amazing hat that our boy Wiki had on. It's uh, another cartoon done by our man Roger Warwick, who's done all of mine, all of ours, uh, and that was Wiki in a speedy wheelchair. So. TorontoMotorsports.com tells me that you can head to their TorontoMotorsports.com site right now. And I believe on the front page, you can pre-order one of those new Robert Wickens speedy wheelchair hats. And August delivery is the expected time frame. We'll also just close here before we get into Sebastian Bourdais and then move on to Andretti Autosport Indy Lights driver, Ryan Norman just want to say thank you again to everyone for all your kind notes after my wife's surgery on Monday, which went extremely well. We aren't disclosing any more than that right now, and I don't know if we will, and hopefully you all are okay with that. So let's get going with our man, the French fry to my hamburger, Sebastian Bourdais then young that's right don't stop believing it's ryan norman and then i will close the show with a whole bunch of awesome questions you have sent in all made possible truly made possible by heavily engaged partners at cooper tires and the justice brothers i've already mentioned those crazy kooks in canada so we don't need to keep repeating their name uh com, and then also our really really good important friends at bell racing helmets USA just throw in here quickly because it occurred to me that I should knowing that things have been very crazy for the past while here on the home front uh, have spent I think there's one day where I had about five hours in the office here to do work in the last 15 Maybe. Other than that, it's been at the hospital with my wife from the early ish in the morning, uh sometimes seven fifteen, seven thirty, sometimes a little bit later, not much, and usually until seven or eight PM at night, sometimes it's been nine, but been there more or less full time now for a couple of weeks. And uh I think we're going to be here recording this early, about six AM Wednesday. Got the other interviews done, I think the day before, and then the day before that, a little bit of a piecemeal thing here where I can find little moments. Um, I think we're going to be there for probably the rest of the week. Then we will move on to another facility, and then we're not exactly sure what is going to happen after that. But it's been really amazing, as usual, with all the love that you all have sent in. Uh, I've said this before. I will keep saying it because it is true. You guys do feel, and when I say guys, that's not meant to be gender-specific, although it's the wrong word for it, but you all uh, really do feel like family, and I know that there are, uh, I see the numbers, there are thousands and thousands of you, not millions, unfortunately yet, but thousands and thousands of you who listen to this show each week, and just the outpouring of awesomeness and kind and caring humanity. Uh, it is, it's very meaningful. Might come across as a little bit odd. All right, Pruitt, so you have more people listening to the show than you actually know, meaning you think and feel and have this sense that this is a family, and yet you don't know the majority of the family members. Maybe I'm silly like that. I don't know, but that's what it feels like. And from the notes of thoughts and prayers to the offering and the saying of actual prayers to just simple, hey, I'm not religious. I'm not any of that. I just wanted to send you good vibes. Everything that comes in, you'd be amazed how sustaining it can be. Because sometimes, if not oftentimes, these kinds of scenarios that we are in and have been in feel like you are fighting to keep your head above water not just on a daily basis but kind of at all times while you're awake so i'm not going to go into a whole lot more here i uh, will just say that since this is my wife and i we don't have kids um, our parents uh, my wife's mother's still alive but we don't really have a Uh, family uh, infrastructure around us here. Uh, It's pretty much the two of us just dealing with this more or less solo in person. Uh, Lots of, again, lots of folks sending love and and folks wanting to come by and whatnot, but it's pretty much just the two of us. So it's been a very interesting experience in just self fortitude uh, and having to be your own counsel, be your own inspiration. Uh, When you, when I get very angry or depressed, or and leaning towards falling into despair, um, it does help. It truly does help to see these little notes that come in. Um, Monday was a really heavy day, and <laughs> out of nowhere, I get this beautiful series of texts from Simon Pagino. Uh, the guy who just won the race the day before who should be celebrating and just, Hey, I'm the man. And you know, um, should be just the, the person receiving nothing but love and warmth from folks, uh, for his achievement. And instead, um, I'll, I won't share the contents of what he sent because it was among friends, but still just one of those things where it's like, geez, thank you, man. I mean, that's, (laughs) it really helped, um, And I can run down the list of a lot of other folks, drivers, folks running racing series, friends, mechanics, whatever, PR folks, um, and centrally, you all, uh, for realizing often when even I happen to fail to realize that um, being able to keep my head up and keep my spirits up, it's very important, so... With all that, thank you, and thank you again, and thanks for building what has become for me a feeling like every week I get to turn on the old microphone here and talk to a growing family and a very important family for me. And Speaking of family, it's time for my French fry. So let's get going with our man who celebrates his 200th IndyCar start this weekend in Iowa, the French fry to my hamburger, the finest, finest, four-time champ car champion from Le Mans, France, Sebastian Bourdais on the Marshall Probe podcast and our week in IndyCar series. Sebastian Bourdais, I can tell you that of the many things that I miss having been off of the IndyCar road for, uh, it's coming up on almost two months straight now doing our hamburger and french fry shows and i don't know if turning the week in indycar podcast into a mini hamburger and french fry episode is going to suffice but i'm just really glad that you're able to find some time here between toronto and iowa and all kinds of commitments so how are you doing my brother
1: well i'm doing uh i'm doing fine um... Yeah, my hamburgers uh I'm missing my hamburger at the racetrack, that's for sure. Uh, so uh yeah, it's uh not uh not been uh last couple of months is that uh we're uh hoping for, that's for sure. Uh for various reasons. Uh mostly uh mostly uh your loved one related. Because uh, you I don't really give a shit, but it's okay. Uh, but uh yeah, I mean it's just like darn, that's it's a bit of a punch in the gut. So Hopefully uh, we get, uh, you know, we can lighten up the atmosphere a little bit here, but uh, no, it's, it's been, it's been okay. Just, uh, just being a bit lonely on the track and hell, if I can make time at, at the house between races, I used to make time for you in the weekends, like right coming out of the car. So that's like a, an easy ask.
0: We'll see. So apparently one of the things that has gone sideways since I haven't been there is you've become a bully. I mean, I I can only assume that because you now have drivers who are half your height and are known for being the sweetest people in the world are wanting to jump out of the car and fight you. So what, what, what have I been not doing to kind of keep you in that happy French fry place? And what is it that you've done to make the, the sweetheart that is Takuma Sato Decide that it's time to knuckle up, man.
1: Uh, that's a very good question. I'm still, uh, I'm still trying to figure that one out. Uh, obviously, uh, yeah, I guess. Uh, like I was telling you earlier uh, before we got going, I think uh, if, if uh, passing him on an out lap, uh, really a non-event, uh, creates that kind of uh, outrage on his part, then I guess I found some way to get in Z. So I should do it more often. <laughs>
0: So, the visuals here, I mean, they had a little bit of Justin Wilson, Ryan Briscoe going on. Obviously, the big man was, you know, nine foot twelve was a giant. I'm not saying you're a giant, but most of us, compared to Sato, are giants. Look pretty large, yes. What was it like, you know, you're standing up in the car as well, so that adds even more height. Just... Give me the the perspective looking through your helmet of this, you know, very short-statured man deciding to come and and bring the business to you. Grabs your helmet. That's We'll we'll talk about that in a second. The helmet grabbing, it's always a bit of a punk move. But what what are you seeing? What are you thinking when you're staring down at Takuma Sato? I don't know if you could hear words he was saying, but take us into your visor, man. That must have been crazy.
1: Uh, yeah, it was weird. I mean, honestly, like you said, I mean, just, you know, coming out of a, a non-incident, a non-event on, on track, I just, you know, I was getting out of the car and I got up and then I see him like walking towards my car. And I'm like, you know, maybe he's just going to tell me like, Hey, you know, that was shitty or whatever. And, and walk away. <laughs> but, uh, no, he just, uh, he looked, uh, yeah, he looked at absolutely outraged and, and red, purple, from rage and, and just, I, you know, pretty much, I think said, you know, what the F was that, you know, for or something like that. And, and I just told him like, you know, just go back to go F car. Yeah. <laughs> right now. And, uh, and he lost his shit and he just like grabbed, you know, the front of my helmet and just started shaking my head at which point, like I was like, Oh boy, <laughs> you know, let's, let's, uh, let's, let's just, stop this before it gets ugly and you know yeah mean obviously uh like I you know discussed a couple of times on the different outlets is it's it's been uh, quite an impeder on, on our side and and definitely very rough in the last couple of events. Um I don't know if there was any kind of team backlash on you know following their view of me kind of uh, being responsible for Graham's crash in Indy but uh yeah basically in Texas after uh, he wiped his entire uh, pit crew down uh, and proceeded to be like three or four laps down. Uh, he made a conscious effort, not once, but twice to pass us and uh, proceeded to just stay there and pretty much not block us, but just, you know, get us to go nowhere because he had a fast car and yeah. Yeah. I never found a way past again. And uh and then in Rover America, he, he kind of hit me twice, one right off the, the start uh, in turn three, coming off turn three, and, and once uh, trying to make an attempt on the outside in, in turn five. So, uh, yeah, I wasn't quite sure what, uh, what his deal was, but, uh, yeah, going back to that, uh, Toronto incident, uh, yeah, I got really nothing for you. He just, uh, you just started to. You know, make false allegations as of, you know, me squeezing him in the wall and, you know, making a dangerous maneuver and, and, uh, me being the aggressor almost when, you know, I think the video is pretty clear and showing exactly, uh, you know, how this unfolded and, and who was really mad at the other and, and who started to use his hands. So I don't know, like honestly, just, uh, not, not really a big deal. Uh, other than I kind of wish that in the car, um is was or had done something uh, about it um since i don 't hear anything i don't think it's very likely um but uh so I guess uh, we might see some more uh fist fights uh or hand fights in in the in Pitman because uh that that tends to encourage people when when no actions are taken like that
0: well i'd just say that for those who might want to engage in that going forward. The helmet grab, again, it's a bad look. So don't do that. One or two other things to close here. And you can tell I'm just trying to have fun because, frankly, I need a little bit of fun right now. One, I was very impressed by Ace, Dale Coin Racing, with Vassar Sullivan, veteran PR man, Kevin Diamond, diving right in. Usually it's going to be yeah, a crew sure. member, right? I mean, as a former IndyCar crew member, I know what it's like doing that and all full of you know, testosterone and manhood and yeah, you're not going to mess with my guy. Instead, it's the PR guy. I'm like, wow. All right. KD muscling in there. I love that. But here's the thing. And here's the thing that I just find funniest, if there's funny to find here. So if this was granted, they never would because I could never see them getting into a fight because they just don't have those bones in their body, but young rookie Felix Rosenquist and young rookie Colton Herta are mad at each other and they're, you know, they're going to shake each other or throw a punch. Youth, I would expect that, haven't lived a lot. The combined age of the two guys getting in the little scrap here, 82 years old. (laughs) Two of the elder statesmen of the sport, I'm like, are you kidding me? Come on.
1: Oh, no, I agree. I have no idea what, what got into him, to be honest. Which All right. Is kind of, I'll leave it at that.
0: All right. Well, yeah, we don't want to have the, the seniors Rock'em Sock'em IndyCar tour, so we're going to go ahead and leave that behind. All right. Well, let's get into the questions that have been sent in for you. We've got some usual ver- today. very good ones that have come in. We're going to kick off with Bob Fay, who has been very quick to send in questions of late. He says, hey, fellas, was wondering if Seb, if you've been offered another contract for 2020 as of yet, uh, and also wants to know if you know anything about Santino's contract. He said he would love to see the two of you stay teammates at Dale Coin Racing. So uh, as always, I don't want to talk about your business. I don't expect you to talk about it, but certainly it seems that Bob would love to see a continuation of the twosome here at DCR next year.
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously I can only talk about myself. It's been, uh, you know, it's been, it's been said pretty much that, uh, you know, that would be, uh, that would be a, a two year deal, uh, for me. So, um, so it is, you know, <laughs> as far as Santino, um, so going, going forward uh, with 20. Um, but yeah, as far as Santino is concerned, um, yeah, there's, there's nothing that I know and uh, even if I, did uh, i wouldn't release because that's just not my uh yeah it's it's over my pay grade i guess
0: well maybe you need to become his manager and agent and you know slice a percentage off of that and then see you actually place your own teammate next to you that would be a pretty smart call
1: well he already has a manager so oh
0: okay never mind um (laughs) all right let's see Jordan Darwin asks, "Seb, how much do you keep up with Formula One? And do you happen to root for your old team or teammate?" I love questions.
1: <laughs> uh, no, I'm 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 more uh, I, I like uh, Lewis better. Uh, to be honest, I think it's just uh, it's just got that raw talent that um, drives pure respect. I mean, it's just it's just amazing. Uh, for me. I've, uh, I've met him uh, uh, when he was much younger and, and on his way up and uh, he could already tell that there was something pretty special in the guy and, uh, and yeah all along in his career I guess he's just uh, made that uh, point very clear so uh, that as far as talents is concerned and uh, if we want to talk about young talents, uh, I think I'm not not a huge fan of uh, of um, Mr. Verstappen really uh, purely because of his attitude and the way he races, which is kind of a little bit dirty sometimes, but, uh, but you gotta respect the guy and, and, uh, on, uh, on a more national touch. I'm uh, very, very uh, impressed with, uh, Charles Leclerc, obviously. Uh, it's just, um, just made, uh, quite, uh, quite, uh, a, a shiny entrance in F1 and, uh, you know, getting that, uh, opportunity with, with Ferrari and making, uh, mostly the best of it, really. Uh, I could have, uh, definitely would should have won that uh, first race very early uh, in brain and uh yeah i can only wish for him that he's got uh, as bright future as everybody i uh, think he will be and uh, will have and um, that he gets that first win pretty soon
0: playing pocket psychologist here like you and i think many been very impressed with leclerc's first year now at ferrari obviously last year i think he was also you know, very impressive as well in definitely inferior equipment. This season has not gone as well as it could have for him. Um What do you think, though, about his teammate from the perspective of with, with Charles being a rookie to the Ferrari team, having to learn his way, showing that he could be probably a multiple-race winner by now, but maybe having to defer to Vettel? It's been odd to me where I would think, some of the quote rookie type mistakes that we have seen Vettel make or losing his cool. These are the things I would normally expect of a kid like Leclerc, just because that's the normal arc. Is it strange at all for you to see if you agree? Almost seems like Leclerc is having a very veteran first season with Ferrari and his true veteran four-time world champion teammate is the one that it almost looks like there's a bit of a, a swap of expectations in terms of mistakes and whatnot.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't go in that debate, but, uh, I think, I think Seb is obviously under pressure because, you know, first of all, the press has never been really easy on him. Uh, I think he, he kind of drags that and, and kind of maybe creates it to some, some extent, but, uh, um, yeah, I mean, he's, he's obviously a world class driver and, and a world champion. And, um, you know, I think it's just, it's never really easy when you have a strong teammate. Um, uh, furthermore, um, you know, a, a very talented rookie like that that basically can only uh benefit from the situation where, you know, if he if he gets beat then it's normal and and if he outshines the, the veteran then you know the veteran is under a huge amount of pressure all of a sudden. So I think it's never an easy one. And um I, I think generally the things are just not going the way he'd like them to go at Ferrari and he wants to win and, and uh they don't really have uh seemingly you know the package that they need to kind of do that constantly and and to be as big a threat as they'd like to be and i think maybe he just ends up you know pushing a bit too much and exposing himself and and then you make a mistake and then you look like a fool and people jump the guns and then write very mean quick things and you know it, it's it's a tough f1 is a tough scene i mean the, the driver is kind of uh always at fault and and it can, it can get to your head pretty fast. So I think uh, he's he's just not having the best time right now.
0: Let's go to Corey Matthews who asks Seb, what is something that you really look forward to doing in the off season that maybe we would not expect?
1: Uh, You know, just be a regular guy off the road. uh, Mostly. I think uh, the, the biggest thing when, when you've done this for a while is, is just trying to find the balance and, and and stay away from traveling that's that's the biggest thing for me traveling is, is you know some people think that it's it's glamorous and this and that is just strenuous for me
0: <laughs> well i was hoping so. you were going to say a part-time tattoo artist in the greater tampa bay area <laughs> or but
1: no no that ain't gonna happen but uh yeah just just being uh just being a normal guy again and and then you know being able to enjoy the kids and the family in general and and, and do uh you know, do more things. Maybe a little bit more simple than than you know, traveling uh, across the country and, you know, and and just being on on the on the road a lot.
0: Would say house renovation projects too, Corey. And I don't know if you actually enjoy that. I know that if you're not happy with the work that's maybe been done, you have no hesitation to get in there and get it done correctly. But you do seem to be someone that enjoys really making a full life for yourself when you aren't racing. And I think that's maybe different from some who obviously have a life away from racing, but it's maybe something to keep them from being bored between seasons or between rounds. You, on the other hand, with two kids, obviously with Claire as your wife really does seem like you, you know, you need to be fully invested in home, in family uh, whenever racing does not require you to be, which I think that's also become really one of the big strengths that you have.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think you know you have to find your balance, and and you have to be a you you, you really want and try to be the best dad and husband you can. You know when when uh, things don't get too crazy around you. So uh, definitely uh, try and be very conscious of that because it's you know we we always kind of look at it like you know I things are tough sometimes in racing and, and, and yeah, they, they take a lot from you. But, uh, when, when you're that guy, he obviously gives a lot to your career in general. Um, you know, it's very easy to forget the ones around you.
0: Let's go to Jerry Sudduth, who says, Sebastian, what is your proudest accomplishment so far as a driver and why?
1: Uh, well, I mean, it's always tough to pick moments. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd say globally, you know, the, the champ car days, uh, and the success that we've had, uh, you know, in, in those five seasons, uh, is, is something that, uh, I take a huge pride, uh, and, uh, into. And, um, that, you know, I said it many times uh, I don't think any of us enjoyed them to the full extent uh, that we should have because, you know, it was just uh, an amazing experience, amazing times, and uh, and you get caught up in the moment, and then you get too used to winning, I guess, and you don't realize exactly what's what's happening in front of your eyes, and uh, and yeah, I guess uh, if if I if I had to just kind of put things a little bit more in perspective, I would have tried to enjoy it a little bit more. But it's also tough because you just, you know, it's always. Uh, it's always one of those where you win one and and uh, the next one comes and and you just gotta prepare for the next challenge uh, otherwise you're just not going to win again so and i guess it's racing for you
0: any interest at some point in the future of being the former indycar champion who has one of his championship winning cars with an engine in it and the ability to go and drive it whenever once a year who knows but Something where you have an actual running championship car that was kind of the baddest thing on the planet at the time.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, I I would have loved to have that, um, you know, after my my uh, McDonald's years, obviously. But uh, yeah, I guess you know the the opportunity you know represented itself, and um, yeah, it's we'll see. Right, right now it's it's not a priority, but uh, you know, I, I know. I know where those cars are. <laughs> so uh, we'll see maybe someday.
0: Well, I'm going to crowdfund. Well, I'm going to solve this for you. I'm going to solve this problem. I'm going to crowdfund the purchase of a 2012 Dragon Racing Delara DW12 Lotus Judd. And I'm telling you, man, it's going to be just like you were back in Formula 3. <laughs> um, all right, sorry. I don't.
1: I don't think there is any of those units left that are actually running.
0: Weren't there? I mean, again, I'm, I'm being a bit of an ass here, but you know, one of these days we'll tell. Actually, so we need is. to do. We, we, you and I need. I think enough time has passed. I mean, what? We're seven years later. Enough time has passed where we can probably have the uh, the Marshall and Seb talk about the Lotus IndyCar program. Yeah, like um, cause you and I had some fricking barn burner conversations back then all between ourselves, but, uh, yeah, I think there's a hell of a story podcast. I don't know what, but one of these days we need to, uh, we need to uncork some of that. Um, let's go to Ian Keyworth. who says, Seb, any thoughts on chances, whether IndyCar might ever return to Europe he says, wouldn't it be great to see the series racing on classic tracks, Spa, Silverstone, Monza, Barcelona. Any thoughts, any chance you think this could happen again?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, I, you know what it would take. It would take a promoter to, you know, take the chance and, and just uh, get us back over there. I think, unfortunately, and, and as, you know, just the uh, past times kind of show, um since we haven't had international races in a while, and and it's not by lack of trying. uh, It it is a a very difficult uh, economic model to put together. Um, Those races are particularly expensive and expose, especially the promoters. So, yeah, I mean, it it is one of those where uh, it's totally feasible, but it would require some serious backing and, and a very strong promoter.
0: And that's always the answer to such things. Hey, why does an IndyCar go back to fill in the place? And there's never a, there's rarely ever a quality reason, right? We should go back to this place or we should go to here for the first time. I'm always raising my hand saying, I totally agree. That'd be amazing. Who's going to pay for it? Uh, Because IndyCar doesn't just show up for fun. There has to be a business model that makes sense for them to do that as well. Let's go to Ben Cohen. Great question here, Ben, and I think a lot of folks will will enjoy the answer, provided you don't suck in giving it. Um, He says, guys, can you describe uh, both how drivers and teams can, quote, save tires? He says it was talked about during the Toronto race, and as someone who has never gotten behind the wheel of a race car, I don't quite understand how a driver can use less of a tire while they are racing. Ben says, now fuel saving, I can wrap my head around that. But trying to lessen tire degradation not so much, really appreciate any insights you can offer
1: well, i mean it's it's yeah, it's pretty simple really it's just uh instead of driving ten ten uh just like fuel saving you you know you you're not using the engine ten ten you you're backing off at the end of the straight coasting um well you're not obviously letting as much speed through the corner, so not you know being as uh, as hard on the front tires, and, and when you get back on power, just being slightly more gentle, making sure that you don't have any wheel spin and stuff like that. that that's how you um, that's how you make sure that your tires last. If uh, if you start to uh, put together qualifying laps after qualifying laps, and, and you know tire degradation is, is an issue or tire wear, which is two different things, um, uh, because tire degradation can be heat related uh, and not particularly wear related. And um, so, this, it, sometimes um, it's, it's a different, uh, it's a different reason. But uh, no matter what, if uh, if, you, if you make sure that you're not sliding the cars quite as much and you're not putting as much uh, stress in the rear tires on the on the power, um, yeah, you're gonna you're gonna make them uh, live a little longer.
0: Another way I could maybe help with this, Ben, and this is just granted having done a little bit of race car driving, but also a fair amount of. Engineering and even driver coaching, lots of stuff out on watching up close in the corners. The practical way that saving or conserving tires takes place if we use, say, turn three, Seb, at Toronto, down that long straight, you're braking, you're turning in, there's that uphill uh, aspect to it. If you wanted to turn in hard, romp on the throttle, just get crazy aggressive on the throttle. You could potentially spark a little bit of wheel spin, but you're going to be placing uh, a higher degree of load, side load on the tires, Ben, possibly a bit of wheel spin, which is going to bring the heat up in the carcass in the loading, the higher degree of loading and the higher heat that you're generating. In general, those things tend to be things that will take away uh, overall tire life. If we're talking about now going up the hill and say, you've got a bit of understeer in the car. If you want, you can keep your foot in the throttle. And although it's understeering, keep turning the wheel more effectively grinding the front tires more to make it turn. And it will likely do that. But in deciding to do that, you're doing the same exact thing, placing more lateral load on the tire, heat's going to come up. These are things where you can do that lap after lap and you can produce some extra lap time in doing that. But you're also effectively turning down the lifespan, the quality of those tires for the entire stint. So instead of doing that, being overly aggressive and abusing the tires to get the performance that you want out of the car, some slight adjustments that can be made where maybe you're not as hyper aggressive on the throttle, uh, starting to power up the hill. Uh, in turn three maybe if you're feeling that touch of understeer you're easing back off the throttle instead of trying to keep your foot down and just turn the steering wheel more to get it to go it's making some of those small adjustments where you can still go quickly but maybe not burn up the tires as fast as you might if you were less mindful less loving for them
1: yeah, and it's, you're talking about a cup of the tenth, you know, and, and really the big equation is always, uh, you know, over 30-something lap stint, uh, what's the fastest? Uh, you know, if, if you go for those ultimate laps, uh, you know, time and time and time again, uh, you know, when does it start to uh, give up? And, you know, if it gives up after 20 laps, the last 10 laps, it's only going to get worse and worse and worse and worse. And at that point, you you may lose or start to lose, you know, half a second a lap and, and a second a lap, and then maybe a second and a half a lap on the last few laps, uh, which point you like mm, should you know I probably should have given up those couple of tens uh, earlier and taken care of my stuff and and sustain uh, the lap time at the end. I
0: have two questions related to your young teammate from Connecticut, not from Milan, Italy, as his name might suggest, our pal Vincent Anderson says, Sebastian, you've had a wide number of teammates over the years. Um, What makes Santino Ferrucci stand out in your mind? Uh, And he also asks, where do you think he has grown the most as a teammate since the start of the season?
1: Uh, Well, I mean, I I think Santino has a lot of experience. You know, he's been racing since he's really, really little. He's dad on the go-kart track, and and he sure spent a lot of time in those things. And then, you know... They, they climbed the ladder and went to Europe and uh, ended up in very competitive fields, very close to you know what I've I've experienced when I was uh, when I was going up through the ranks. But also you know it's it's gotten even more competitive and and more technically advanced uh, a lot in Europe uh, over the last ten years, I would say. And so Santino's obviously grown with that, and and he's he's got a lot of Deal and and he kind of really knows what he, he he likes and what he wants out of the car um, and and he's he's a hard worker you know so he's he's dedicated and uh i don't think he's changed very much since the beginning of the season he has kind of one attitude it's just uh you know basically go as hard as you can and um he's not afraid to drive a, a loose car and 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 to be yeah and taking chances, and, you know, he's uh, he's definitely got some some skills, and, and he's got some quick hands. So, um, yeah, I mean, he's, he's he's got, he's taken on the ovals very well, uh, particularly the super speedways, because uh, the sort ovals, of, we really haven't had um, many experiences so far. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, he's, he's definitely one to watch uh, in the future.
0: I love the fact that he has had a sneaky good rookie season. Obviously know that he came in the uh, last year and did a couple of races, but really, I think it's been fun to watch folks realize that, Oh, he's not just this reputation of an ugly American who did dumb things, said bad, whatever it was, acted like an idiot last year uh, at a formula two race. This person actually has talent to drive a racing car. That's not something we knew as part of that a very simple reputation, and, oh, actually, he's trying to be a better human being. Um, It's just been cool to watch what had been, for some, a stereotype, just a cast in stone, this is the worst human being ever, and who cares about anything else that he does, uh, to actually just see him kind of be a young kid trying to be a better person and then also show folks that he actually has a lot of potential and a lot of talent I know that there was a hit piece written a month or two ago, some idiot I've never heard of, uh, who wrote something saying, I don't care about, you know, anything he's done or any improvements he tries to make. He's still that horrible person from last year to me. Um, that's fine. Just, it's pretty cool to see that just trying to be a race car driver and lead a more wholesome life. These are two things he's been able to achieve and as someone who likes second chances, um, good for him. Also, we have Robbie Bergeron who asks to close the Santino loop. Seb, did Santino apologize for running into you in turn one last weekend?
1: Yes, he did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Now, did uh, he? Did we, you have to go over them, I, or did he come no, to that, you? Did he bring you a donut as an apology? <laughs> what did he do?
1: No, no, he, uh, he, he was uh, he was sincerely apologetic about it. He, he didn't think I was going to break. I, I had rehearsed my stuff, and, and I knew from the morning warm-up that uh you know but the tires being as hot as they were being in the sun and pit lane and everything on new tires i was going to be able to brake really late even out of the pits uh, obviously i was defending on on felix who was uh, right in my uh, gearbox coming off the pits and um that's all i really knew uh i had no radio message that he was anywhere around and and so i braked you know just about as late as uh as normal pretty much and sentino came you know Rolling in there with a ton of speed and and thought that you know it would be an easy pass and uh, unfortunately as as he committed to his breaking point he realized that uh, I break far later than he had anticipated and uh, only kind of made it to my uh, right rear with his step front so uh, that could have been uh, that could have been really ugly but uh, there was obviously no intention to. Uh, to do any wrong there. And, uh, and yeah, I guess we, we got the lottery ticket that, uh, kind of, uh, was the one out of a million, maybe that both cars made it out of there, uh, without a scratch. and uh, so, uh, we'll just uh, leave it as that.
0: One or two more here on Facebook, then we'll jump over to Twitter and then we will, uh, go on about our respective days. Jordan Darwin says, Seb, with the Red Bull aero screen coming next year, are there other areas with the cars, the rules, or even the tracks that you think IndyCar needs to focus on next for safety improvements, knowing that this arrow screen appears to be a box that will be ticked very soon
1: uh, there's always uh, things that you know can be done and uh, fortunately it's always down to money really uh, it's never any lack of uh, uh, ideas or uh, you know, things that you could uh, think of to, to make things better. But, uh, I had a friend, yeah, I mean, Seb
0: last weekend, a friend at Toronto, and this is not a person who heard the story who from someone else, but actually witnessed it himself. I had a friend working at Toronto last weekend. Tell me that very close to the crash site where Jeff Krasnoff was killed 23 years ago. Some of the fencing was held in place. Um, on the poles with cable ties, plastic cable ties. So I'm just throwing this in quickly because while this is not a huge, Oh, we need to completely redo the fencing at Pocono or something like that. I've just blown away that in 2019, (laughs) someone decided ah metal who needs metal to hold metal fence against metal poles. We'll use plastic cable ties. Sure, that will stop a car or a wheel or otherwise. So, I on the topic of I mean, there's always uh, things we I'll, can I'll improve. I'll the loop
1: on that. I mean, uh, to be honest with you, uh, there's um, you know, there are very few fences on street courses that you know are up for the job because they're obviously you know they are mobile blocks and you can't put enough pressure on cables, uh, tension to really retain the car. You know, it's just it's 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 such a complicated matter and and yes i understand you know like but bottom line um when you get a car up in the air i think in um, that accident you referred to i think actually there was a tree or a post or something that he hit that um, unfortunately killed him but that that has been removed and you know yeah, I mean, would 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 it be nice to have some mesh that's you know held together by something else than a zip tie? Yeah, sure. <laughs> would that really make a difference? No, unfortunately. And I and I wish I would say something else, but um, you know, yeah. The the big the big point is like the the big cables that you need to hold the you know the 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 horizontal aspect uh, of of the uh, retaining fences is is usually never really quite applicable on on street courses and and they are in the places where it's most likely to be a problem and particularly in toronto they they do a very good job and they do use some some much heavier fencing grid um uh, welded um that definitely do you know much better job than the typical small post with mesh Uh, but yeah it's it's never it's never perfect
0: let me just, sorry, as my cat Rocky decides to start sweeping things off the desk here. Um, let me just tack on to the end of this here. So getting towards the end of the 2019 season, we know that we have a new engine coming in 21. We are told a new chassis is coming in 22. It's not exactly tomorrow. That's also not exactly just an impossible point in the future. Is there a point, Seb, where you believe you, some of your fellow drivers, uh, start saying to IndyCar, hey, when should we sit down and share collective input on what this future chassis might need or we might consider in terms of general safety improvements compared to the DW12? Just curious if you think there's a point that conversation should start. And should that start by the series coming to you guys, you guys going to them? Does it matter? I definitely believe it needs to happen.
1: Yeah, no, definitely. Um, uh, you know, we have regular kind of meeting points, uh, during, uh, the season and, uh, you know, one, one being in the, in the winter. Uh, so yeah, I think it's, it's going to be coming up and I'm sure there will be a war group and, uh, I'm, I'm fairly confident that the structure of, of the technical group within IndyCar right now is kind uh, of a, a better handle on, you know, what direction and and not to forget the uh, the reason why things are in certain ways. Uh, um Over the years, like unfortunately, when the DW12 came out, at first, you know, there were, there's been a lot of band-aids that have been put on that car, and a lot of band-aids that, unfortunately, also have added a ton of weight to that car. Um, you know, personally, if we want to talk about, you know, the the Halo Plus screen type of thing, you know, I'm I'm still a little bit skeptical, to be honest. I mean. <laughs> I'm, I'm. I don't. I'm not saying that it's a bad idea or whatsoever. But uh, I think you know to be able to run the screen with the hell at street and road courses. You know we still haven't quite figured out and debated what the visibility aspect of things was going to be. So do we decide that we don't run in the rain? It's, you know, uh, there's a lot of things that um, I feel like you know they've, they've announced this, and and I really um, wish that they had been maybe a bit less definite about it yeah. there's, there's definitely the option to run the halo or, or whatever structure they want to call it um, um without the screen at some point so maybe we just run the screen on super speedways and ovals in general and maybe we don't on other places i i don't know i I'm, i've not been really completely in the loop but uh I think we all need to take a deep breath at some point and also keep a, a very open mind with with the whole thing because I, I do acknowledge completely and agree that we need to do the best possible to try and in, improve safety, but we just want to be maybe a little careful with the, the consequences, the unintended consequences.
0: Last item here on Facebook, Brett Ross is, at, is wanting to hear you speak your native tongue. He's asking if you can say, I am Marshall's French fry and he is my hamburger in French
1: well that doesn't really uh yeah i'm not sure that's gonna sound really cool <laughs> no no it just doesn't sound right
0: well fair enough i like that seb's seb's his own man if y'all didn't know that he doesn't just do whatever he's asked to do that's not very nice of you, by the way uh let's see why don't we go? Well, you know, I'm
1: the mean guy since this week. Well, so we I was gonna say. Following.
0: I mean, for the fact that you could take IndyCar's nicest guy and turn him into the angriest man. Again, uh, I'm really disappointed in who you are. Uh, let's go to Doughboy on Twitter here, and this is a question uh, I was waiting to get to you on. He says, "Great to see you and the team back running up front in the streets of Toronto." He says, "Thanks for being so great with us, fans up here always." He said, "Seems like you had great pace." there were a couple of track surface-related questions he was wondering about. He says, There are a few cars spinning in Turn 11 during Friday practice due to that new patch of sealant on the track, but it didn't seem to be as much of an issue Saturday or Sunday. Was this just a case of drivers changing their line to avoid it, or did that actually do something to the track to improve it?
1: Uh, No, I actually honestly don't believe that the epoxy patch has got anything to do with it, because if anything... Um, the patch was more grippy. So maybe there was actually something that, you know, you were on the patch and just coming off of the patch. Maybe you were getting a bit of a wiggle or something, but, uh, it's just the, the curvature of the corner is very open initially. And you could see the cars trying to run as much the, the entry as possible to get a clearer exit shot. Uh, and there's a bit of a transition as well on the road on, on just before the wall, which, which is really easily ups, upsetting uh, the, the back of the car on power as much, you know, as you're trying to apply power coming off of there. And so, unfortunately, on the green track, that was extremely unforgiving. And, uh, and yeah, everybody got his fair share of snaps. And, uh, and yeah, some guys even dared it to the point where the the whole back of the car came around. And then as the track rubbered up, then it became a lot more forgiving and a lot more about understeer through there than, than oversteer.
0: Let's see, looking at the last couple of items here for us, you know, one of the things that stood out to me, and I know it's a weird thing because it involves a municipality, not uh, an actual independent track that's owned by someone. I can't think of a section of circuit of any of the places IndyCar visits that needs a repave more from... I'd say halfway entering into just as you pass the final kink headed towards turn eight, uh, exiting turn 11. And based on just the amount of bumpiness, the amount of, or the lack of grip in some places, tell me if you agree or not, Seb, but one of the things I've been disappointed in, especially in the most recent track reconfiguration in this area, is blasting through turn 11 would give, real passing opportunities for some might've involved push to pass, but turn one used to be a place where actual passing attempts were made with two cars fighting over position. It seems like everyone is choked down to such a kind of tippy toe speed through turn 11. Now that I don't know if I really recalled anyone really trying to make an honest side-by-side pass after rocketing out of turn 11. What do you think? Again, it'd be hard because it's a, a city owned thing, but I wonder if Indy Carr can help to get that repaved, and do you think that might help no, really, turn, I mean, turn it's, one. It's,
1: it's honestly a, a negotiation between the promoters, and, and, and Kim and Kevin do a great job at that with the City of Toronto. That is obviously a big, uh, a big administration, I'm sure, and, and you know, like to get stuff from those kind of administrations, probably a big, a big ask. Uh, and and they've been pretty nice. I mean, honestly, they've repaved Lake Shore. Uh, a few years back, which is, okay, now it's already getting bad again, but not to the point where, like, you know, we absolutely need to have it repaved. Uh, then the, two years ago, they repaved the run down to turn one, which made things a lot easier. And then they repaved the run from six to eight last year, uh, which, you know, really made things a lot easier. And to some extent, I I You know, repaving at some point is necessary. There's there's no denying that. But the the roughness of the braking in turn eight used to also be an absolute challenge. So was the bumpiness of turn one uh, and the the braking zone. Uh, Now we've pushed the braking points between turn eight and turn one by about 15 yards, maybe 20 yards in some places. Uh, And that's really made a big difference Mm. uh, to the point where actually passing is a lot, less easy because um there were more differences between the cars that were bouncing up the bumps and up in the air and the cars that took it a little better and where the guy was more comfortable actually pushing the car there. So as for passing related issues, that probably didn't really help. Mm. Um so the but,
0: opposite of what I said.
1: Yeah. But for but as far as the nine, ten, eleven compared to what it used to be Uh, Because pretty much now we're where pit lane was and the pits are where the track was. Um, Yeah, I think there's no denying that everybody wishes that hotel had never come and that the track had not changed and that we would still be on the original uh, layout. Like it was more fun. It was more uh, natural. and, And the increase in speed was, you know, kind of setting up something for for turn one now it's it's a very tricky section it's a very tricky last corner and uh yeah i mean it it doesn't really favor uh close uh, proximity because you have to be so tight and so close to the wall that you know when you wash a little bit behind the car and you don't have the visibility uh you're exposing yourself so much that um it's tough to justify the risk to actually make a legit attempt at being in the gearbox of the guy in front of you to try and and create an opportunity for breaking turn one. so yeah i mean I, i i don't i honestly don't think that repaving would make a whole lot of difference it would go faster but i don't think it would help as far as being closer and and reducing some opportunities the the truth is before we used to have a curb and and it was faster and it was more open visually Um, and now it's just a very tricky section where you can make a mistake so fast
0: let's get to the last couple of questions here this comes in from windy car who says seb from tv dale coin just seems like this big fun loving teddy bear kind of a guy would you share your best or funniest Dale Coin story?
1: <laughs> uh, I I don't really have any. I mean, you know, the the, the best I think really memories that uh, I have with Dale is that you know first race back in seventeen uh, when you know we won at Saint Pete from a disastrous Saturday and and you know we all made it up for my mistake and and uh, and went on to win that race and. And as I told him, you know, I'll ever be grateful for the opportunity to put, uh, you know, that group together and, and allow me to drive the car. Um, that that will, you know, there is nothing I can top that, you know, for me to be able to to bring the guys abroad and to um, kind of, you know, offer the the, the deal to Dell to to make to make it a reality. Because at the end of the day, I was always going to be up to him to take it or not and then to make it happen financially. And he did, and, and to repay him with a win like that was, was really very special. Um, and then after that, you know, he's, he's an interesting character. Um, I don't think really anybody knows Dale Coin. Dale um, he's, he doesn't talk a lot, um, he nods a lot, he listens a lot. Um, he is he among really the most
0: enigmatic people <laughs> in the paddock, and I love Dale Coyne, he is. He is passion for racing without question. Truly one of the biggest fans of motor racing among any team owner. You'll find a former IndyCar driver owned, you know, been owned countless entries over the years. Really hard though, as you mentioned, I don't know how many people can say they actually know Dale Coyne. I don't know if that's a criticism, because some nope, people nope, are nope. just that way, and, and say, "Hey, the we'll yeah. talk that's about something. racing. I'll see at the track, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. But who I am away from this sport—that's private. That's held for me and my family. That's been Dale. And having known more than a few drivers who have been Dale Coin drivers, uh, that's actually been a, a fairly constant comment. That hey, you know, it's uh, really enjoy driving for him. Couldn't tell you the first thing about him because that's just really not something that he opens up too much. So, just his personal preference. All
1: right. I mean, but I can tell you one thing, though. He's a good kisser. I do do get him on the phone most of the time. What? Which is something really hard to do. I think I actually managed that.
0: You have a career in... Just bring in miracles because <laughs> that, well, that's, a, that's, that's an amazing, in, <laughs> I need to take a minute to think about what you just said. What? Uh, the conversations, and I'll share this again. There's not speaking out of turn here. It's just, it's reality. The conversations that our dear departed friend, our beloved big man, Justin Wilson, the conversations he and I used to have about, I'm his driver. I'm signed to a contract from him. I haven't heard from him in three months. <laughs> I've called, I've left messages, I've texted, I've sent emails. I can't get a peep out of the guy. Um and he hasn't changed phones. You know, I, I know that this is the right number and knows the right email address. I'm his driver. And he won't respond to me like, Hey man. So when are you guys going to get out, going testing? I have no idea. Um, I've been asking myself for uh, six weeks. I can't get an answer. And you go, that's an interesting one. Um, you are signed, you know, where you'll be driving next year. You kind of know, based on the calendar IndyCar puts out where you should ask the airplanes to go beyond that. Kind of a mystery until he perks up. And, you know, uh, again, not speaking out of turn, you may have experienced that once or twice or 47 times. The fact that you've cracked the Dale coin communication code, man, that's amazing.
1: I must have moved up in the world. You
0: must have. I love it. I love it. All right. Let's get to our last two questions. Uh, The first one comes in from Adam Jensen, who says, Seb. Do you enjoy doing work on the simulator? And he also asks, have you ever come up with a a theoretically fast setup on that simulator that proved to be the opposite or diabolical when you tried it on track?
1: Well, my my experiences with those uh, machines are actually fairly limited. I I used to do quite a bit of work with Peugeot uh, in the simulator, um, but that was fairly short-lived. And, uh, my next experience, uh, since Peugeot really has only been, uh, that, uh, day, that two day test that we did in the simulator uh, to prepare for Toronto. Um, because it's not part of the deal we have with Honda. So we don't have windows of usage and it's not budgeted and everything. So until very recently, thanks, thanks to uh, Ted at uh, HPD, we finally uh, got an opportunity to um used the facility and uh everybody was great and uh, yeah they did help us to elevate our level uh from where we were last year which was really not very good uh to what we've seen this weekend which was you know allegedly uh a, a fast six uh top five potentially uh had I not make uh, that made that little mistake um we, we would have finished fifth. So yeah, no, I was I was very pleased with that. Um, there's never any guarantees, uh, but we uh, we went in with a very open mind and worked very hard. I think I did 370 some laps in two days, <laughs> and uh, and uh, yeah, we actually uh, came out with uh, with something, and uh, it actually turned out to be very uh, uh, interesting and, and very useful when we when we arrived on, on track. The car was actually. Uh, I wouldn't say spot on, but it was definitely more competitive than the other platform that we had used before.
0: And that was another thing I wanted to ask about here. And thanks for broaching the topic, Adam. So you and I I think just by text over the weekend in Toronto, I was mentioning that it was impressive to see how well you were running, knowing that at this stage of the season for some of the smaller teams, and I don't mean smaller in terms of necessarily fewer people, just not a big raging budget to either hire a bunch of additional engineers or fund season long R and D efforts. It's usually actually before this point in the season, but usually by this time you're seeing the effects of where the bigger teams with bigger budgets that can bankroll engineering R and D stuff uh, all throughout the season, take steps to distance themselves from the smaller teams the smaller teams that don't have the money to do that, again, the inverse, obviously, they tend to fall back a little bit. So it was impressive to see you guys coming out being fairly strong. How much of that do you put to the ability to uh, get into that simulator? And maybe without it, do you think the gap might have been a little bit bigger uh, just because, again, difference in resources are really starting to be felt at this stage?
1: Um, there's, there's no denying that I would not gone to the simulator Would would have never been able to figure out... Um, that different platform that we decided to pursue. Like, there's absolutely no argument there. I like, guess just it would not have happened. We would have never taken the chance to um, unload a car that would have been so far off what we typically use um, to what we actually started with at Toronto.
0: Let's go to our final question from Fly, And I love it. This is why I wanted to save it for last. He says, on any given weekend, Seb, what are the biggest consistent challenges you would face in, say, the Ford Chip Ganassi Racing GT car you've driven at Le Mans and IMSA or your Honda Dale Coyne IndyCar or even the old LMP1 Peugeot? So I know it's a bit of a, a wide question compared to a specific one, but what when you have to think of mastering these three very different machines, GT, Open Wheel, and Prototype, Tell us about the different driving styles needed or mindsets required to actually be excellent in all of them.
1: Well, you you just have to kind of put things a little bit in perspective, right? I mean, um, you know, an Indy car is obviously the most downforce, uh, lightest car there is, with very good Firestone wide Firestone tires, so a lot of mechanical grip, a lot of um, downforce, and and somewhat. Um, you know, significantly less weight, uh, and then you know from there you you only get heavier and less you know downforce and and so on and so forth. So um, power being you know the, quite low on the GT by rules. Um, so it's just you know you you just have to adapt um, the aggression level behind the wheel. Um, you know and, and how much you can hit the brakes and how much you can carry speed and um kind of you know when and how you get back on power depending on how snappy the car is which is a lot to do with how much power you actually have um so you you just kind of look at that equation and and kind of refine that at the track because it's also very grip dependent so it it goes up and down track to track but uh you know once once you kind of know the general philosophy of the car you you, you just apply the offset as, as you know it then and, and it comes fairly naturally unless the car is really out of the window and very uncomfortable for you and you don't have a good feel at all for it um but um but usually you know thankfully you you're working with enough professionals that they figure it out uh uh close enough that it it's within the the, the box and and then you just uh, proceed and Make small adjustments and, uh, and, you know, it's the same old pursuit every weekend. Uh, you know, it's understeer oversteer, over steer, lack like, of traction and trying to get the car to brake better. And uh, you tackle those problems one at a time and, and they're always a little different from track to track. And yeah, <laughs> you just have uh, very different tools because every car uh, responds very differently to, um, to every change. So, um, it's it's uh, I guess I tried to be as generic as I could, but uh, it's a very wide question
0: too. I think that was a fat joke you just made at my expense there. But all right, so we'll close with a couple of things. Folks might not know this. I uh, I don't know if I mentioned it anywhere. Maybe I did. So you and I have a really fun two part podcast that I'm hoping to have time to uh, get out into the world sometime soon. One of my highlights of the year was recording. Peugeot LMP1 stories at Sebring with you and some of your former co-drivers. That was so much fun. So I can't wait to get that done and get that out here sometime in the near future. Just incredible stories being told. I'm hearing on a separate topic on the Ford GT angle, one that is supposed to conclude definitively after Petit Le Mans here in October Keep hearing from some pretty good sources that there might be a stay of execution, not confirming or guaranteeing, but uh, a thing that we've been thinking was definitely going to happen. The cars are going to go away. had some really interesting conversations lately with people who would know, suggesting that, uh, let's just say, that's still in the balance as to whether that's going to happen or not. Obviously, hoping those cars stay and you still have them to drive. Last thing I'll mention is just a thanks to you, man. Folks don't know this because they would have no reason, but our man, Mr. Bourdais, busy being Mr. Race Car Driver, travel guy, family guy, all kinds of stuff. He has been checking in on a very regular basis with my wife and I, sending lots of love and has nothing to do with racing, just being a really, really good friend, as you would hope a friend would do. So just wanted to thank you for that, my dearest french fry Uh,
1: that's what french fries do for their hamburgers bro
0: (laughs) (laughs) ah this is exactly what i needed just a little bit of fun with friends and uh thanks again brother uh obviously hope things go well for you and the team here in iowa just be a little nicer, though. I mean, you look what you've done to Sato. You've ruined the guy. Who's next in your hit list? I mean, that's what I—that's sure. what I should ask. I mean, clearly next, you're like, all time, right, well, next time so, I'll
1: actually—if I'm gonna be that bad guy, you know—I mean, next time I'll make a real effort at you know trying to you know be that bad guy.
0: Wait, what Hinch? I mean, know. so you've ruined Sato. So we got to go to the, like the next nicest guy. So what, Hinchcliffe? You're gonna be picking fights with Hinchcliffe. That's what you're gonna do, huh? I—we can tell. I got you figured out, Borday. Man, you're just evil. Truly evil guy. <laughs> Zach Veach, watch out. Borday's coming for you. No more smiles for you. <sighs> Darkness is coming to Iowa this weekend. Brought to you by Sebastian Borday. Are you in Seal Master colors, by the way? Or what uh, yes. the Mauser colors? There. Beautiful last weekend. Sealmaster. All right. Well, hashtag Seal Master uh, Making no friends but hopefully making good points and success for his team this weekend. Thank you, brother, and we'll look forward to speaking soon.
1: Absolutely.
0: Ryan Norman, happy for you to be making your first appearance in the good old Thank you for having me. week in IndyCar here, coming off of a doubleheader in Toronto, obviously coming off of a somewhat recent maiden IndyCar test with your Andretti Autosport outfit. So we'll get to that in just a little bit. Part of what we try to do here every week, knowing that Cooper Tires has been our primary sponsor now for two years, is definitely try and bring the road to Indy, happen to use those lovely Cooper Tires, bring the people involved a little bit more to the forefront. You in particular, young man, I think you're going to be doing that plenty here uh, in the future, hopefully stepping up to the big leagues. But let's start with the foundation for what you've been doing here with Andretti Autosport and Indy Lights for a little while now. No, the season isn't done, but how are you feeling in terms of personal preparation, everything the road to India is meant to do for a young driver like yourself to get you ready for the top? you feel like that's coming into view for you?
2: For sure. I mean, coming into lights three years ago, I had pretty much uh, barely any experience, to be honest. Um, obviously, we had a long-term goal of doing you know, two to three years, just getting the experience up and learning. Everything and uh, the the road to indy has definitely helped that with you know being able to be at the same race weekends the tracks um, being able to especially with Andretti Autosport being able to look at their IndyCar guys and um, have Michael on the team is a huge help as well. So just really just surrounding um, myself with uh, a whole bunch of experience and just trying to gain that over the past couple of years.
0: So obviously we have this <clears throat> late June. IndyCar test that you did at Mid-Ohio. I mean, granted, I think all of us, if we had the ability, would do an IndyCar test, even if we never had the true talent or maybe ability to get to race an IndyCar. Obviously not going to ask you to confirm anything here, but I mean, it wouldn't be silly to suggest that if you are uh, wanting to go and at least test an IndyCar, that that's something you're aiming towards, I don't know, maybe as early as next year.
2: Yeah, for sure. I think, um, I think we're definitely working towards that for next year. I don't know if that would be, you know, a full, full program or, you know, I'm just trying to put something together for next year. Obviously, we're looking for sponsorships still and, um, starting to have conversations with, um, everyone that we can. So, um, we're at the beginning stages, of course, but that's kind of our goal for next year. So hopefully we can put something together.
0: Another thing that might be fun to, talk about here before we get to the questions that were sent in by our listeners so as a guy who grew up in the bay area journey very big part yeah. of that as a fellow or fellow bay area folks and band and whatnot before the 80s when maybe things started to get a little bit soft um i mean they're a pretty serious rock band like i truly still today love their early albums they're really amazing what for those who don't know explain the angle because if we're thinking a rock band a legendary rock band inducted into the rock and roll hall of fame folks might think well that's going to be on something in nascar IndyCar, indy lights there has to be a really good story to share
2: yeah so actually um my father was in an 80s band called champion it was it's kind of big on the east coast i don't really know if it went too far out in the, the West, but, um, so he, he has a lot of connections into, uh, you know, rock bands and, uh, managers and everything like that. And he's actually really good friends with, uh, Neil Sean and also, um, the piano player of journey. And I think they were playing golf or something like that. And, um, my dad was talking about me racing and everything and they love cars, obviously. And, um, they just started talking and like, wow, how can we get involved? And, um, it, it, the deal came together actually pretty quickly. It was more so they got really excited about it and it was mutual, uh, benefit for both of us. That was great.
0: I love it. Well, again, not much of what you've done, my man has been normal coming into (laughs) where you are in Indy lights. And that is not said in a negative at all. Got a great question here as well about your path to where you are because you haven't been a guy who did two years of usf 2000 couple years of pro mazda slash Indie pro 2000 and finally got to Indie lights but let's get to the questions that have come in for you starting with zach campbell who says couple questions for ryan being part of lights now for a few years being around the road to indy system is there one thing that comes to mind that you think might improve the system for future drivers and he also says on the topic of an interesting lead into the series how was your transition from the atlantic series to lights and how do those two series compare today
2: hmm so you know i really think it's a solid program i don't really know if i would change too much you know i think um maybe i would say I would like to have maybe a couple... I would probably want to go back to Long, Long Beach, actually, for lights. That would be fun. Mm. Um, So maybe in the future they can bring that back. But really, I don't really have too much to say. I think it's a really uh, solid program they have going there. Um gives a lot of people opportunities. Um, and then as the Atlantic series, um, it's completely different from the lights. Um, the cars obviously has way more downforce and um to be honest it's a little easier to drive than the lights car. The lights car is on edge pretty much all the time. And uh you travel to travel to more places. You're with the Indy Car program as well on most of the weekends. So um definitely in front of a lot more fans and people you got the Freedom One hundred which is huge race. So there's a lot more exposure in the Mazarot to Indy and in the lights program. So um, been enjoying that a lot.
0: So, uh, again, I love the, although it's not the real hardcore Atlantic championship that existed for many, many years and was so incredibly good. This is, you know, definitely more of a pro-am club yeah, slanted thing. It doesn't yes. change the fact that the cars aren't freaking amazing, though. So. Oh, yeah. Let's, uh, I was just going to say, I mean, let, let's sit there for a sec because you t- we talk about the Indy Lights car, which has very good power. Uh, it's got, it certainly has a lot of aero and whatnot. But when you talk about an Atlantic car, something that has equal, if not more aero, yet less power, you know, you said yep. from an ease standpoint, I just think it, there's value there because you're not just having to master the one knife edge cars you mentioned in lights. It's something where, You've been able to drive now a couple of different uh, really fast open-wheel cars, giving you just a couple different data points uh, for a hopeful IndyCar career.
2: Yeah, I mean, um, like, for example, at uh, Sebring, if you the, go the full course, turn one was completely flat in the uh, Atlantic car. So that, that was really cool, but obviously you can't <laughs> do that in a light car. Um but, yeah I mean it still you know it gives you the the foundations that you need to um move on to the other to the other cars and things like that. It's really a proper race car um really enjoyed driving it a lot um and I mean the speed is not as fast as a lights car but it's still a really really fast car, so actually stepping into the lights car wasn't um that big of a like a feeling like a change of feeling of the speed. I would just say you just got to drive it a little bit different, um, be a little bit more smooth with your inputs, and um, the braking's obviously uh, a little bit better. And um, But, yeah, I mean, it gave me a good foundation, I think, to move up.
0: Let's go to Jameen Tuttle, who says, Ryan, you have a couple of Indy Lights wins now, obviously referring back to the Oval win last year at Gateway and then Road America here very recently. He said, you seem to be in the top three or four every week. Usually you don't tear up equipment. He says, what kind of feedback do you think that might generate from IndyCar teams? Do you think they might want a higher risk reward type thing out of you? Or do you think the steady hands you've been showing without, as he puts it, without pinballing off of the walls and other cars might be a trait that is uh, is held in higher esteem?
2: Yeah, I mean, the thing I definitely um, try to, to carry... Um, throughout my career is being able to finish races and consistently do that and um i don't think i've i haven't had too many crashes and and lights um so i've been able to show that i can really just get the job done at the end of the day and um consistently finish the races and i think that's important especially moving up to the big cars where things get a lot more expensive uh with crash damage that you uh Definitely want to show the sponsors and teams that you can uh, safely bring home and do it fast as well.
0: Know that I had a couple of folks ask after I posted a story last week on the Hunkos team and the chassis-destroying crash that Victor Franzoni experienced, unfortunately, the IMSA stop in Canada with the Delara built Cadillac DPI, also mm-hmm. piggybacking off of how, uh, they destroyed one IndyCar chassis and then heavily damaged the other. And some folks had mentioned, well, how does all that get paid? Because Ricky mentioned, you know, it's going to be about a million dollars total. And just Oof. in general, not so, there's no hard, fast rule. But in general, we're talking IndyCar coming, you know, in the uh, road to India as well. Crash damage tends to be more on the driver's side. And uh, if we talk IMSA, again, it depends if it's a pro team, if it's a pro-am team, but uh, insurance Is often something that takes place there to cover things. Something that teams pay for and have a deductible. There's insurance as well going on in open wheel too. But yeah, to Ryan's point, it's freaking expensive no matter what. And uh, if you think insurance is 112 dollars a month for your, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars race car, no, 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 it's a little bit higher. So yeah, uh, let's see. Why don't we go to uh, let's go to Nate, uh, Nate Falkowitz. Uh, actually, take that back. We'll go to uh, Michael Goodyear. He says, I saw pictures of Ryan driving the 83 KK Rosberg Williams F1 car and uh, maybe some other more famous things going on around you at Goodwood and wanted to ask you what that experience was like and how it compared to a modern Indy Lights machine and maybe even the car you just tested.
2: So overall, that was an awesome experience. It was my first time at Goodwood, so it was, it was really cool just to be there in general, but to to drive there was such a cool experience and um the car was pretty interesting to drive you know it's a manual h pattern uh gearbox and um it's like really really small distance in between the gears so it's it was pretty easy to miss the gear and do all that so a lot of credit to the guys that used to drive those back in the day because that's uh for sure uh, a little bit harder to do than the uh uh paddle shifts that we have but um overall i mean i think it was like 500 horsepower or something like that so it's close to the power of the lights car um it was definitely a little bit more raw and um you know i think definitely they're a little bit sketchier to drive because it's not the carbon tub so i don't think it's remotely as safe as the cars these days oh no um, no no no,
0: no yeah. uh, you, 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 you can pretty much Touch the ground. You can tickle the front of the car uh, with your toes for sure. Yeah. So, yeah. Yep. Yeah. There was still the uh, ahead of the front axle design era as well. And then you've got the the high revving Cosworth DFV behind you. So, yeah. I think
2: the uh, fuel goes on your side, too. Oh, yeah. It comes around your side a little bit. So, yeah, it's definitely not the safest thing in the world <laughs> for sure.
0: And then you keep in mind that there'd be 20, 25 of these crazy folks all racing these things it folded up very easily and yep. yeah uh just a whole new whole new appreciation for i guess internal fortitude
2: yeah well, for sure
0: well let's uh you know we've got a couple of questions that are fairly similar that we've kind of addressed so i'm going to actually go to our last one here from robbie bergren he says ryan how sore are you after the toronto weekend uh and that's certainly something that as I. Uh, definitely note and have noted now for a couple of years boy if there is a track on the indycar calendar that is just ripe waiting for a repave and i realize these it's a street course but man if, if we're talking about one track if every driver could raise their hand and say fix it uh i think that i'll be pointing to toronto
2: Yeah, it is very, very, very bumpy, especially from, like, 8 to uh, turn 11. That whole entire complex through there is just insanely bumpy. And um, to be honest, the first race, I was actually uh, pretty sore. It was was really hot, and my uh, left glove actually ripped. So I lost complete grip on my left hand, so it was, like, very easy for the steering wheel to slide out of my hand. So I was holding on for dear life so my my left hand is like torn up and uh pretty sore but I got new gloves for Sunday race so it was all it was way better the next day but yeah I mean that's definitely the most physical race of the of the whole entire year.
0: Um, You're one of those guys who needs two hands to sear the car. I see how it is Norman all right whatever. Yeah yeah. yeah. <laughs> um you know and and Robbie also has a question here. And he says, what track would you rather race, uh, in an Indy car, uh, that they don't currently go? He said, would you like to go to VIR or road Atlanta?
2: Ooh, definitely road Atlanta. I gotta say, cause road Atlanta was my, uh, the first track I ever raced on at uh skip barber. And mm. this is where I went to my school and that's where I did, um, some races there and really, really enjoy that place. Um, the elevation change is really cool there. And I don't
0: know, that would be actually a really cool race. I uh, Look, I can't disagree with either. I mean, VIR VIR has some fairly insane complexes. And, I mean, I just think it would be amazing. I don't know how many cars would finish the race because I would just foresee, you know, just guys (laughs) dive-bombing down the inside off the back straight and wiping out four cars and then three over here. I mean, it might be the pace car whomever's driving the pace car and two other people on the podium so uh, but it'd be a blast to watch hopefully everyone would be safe road uh atlanta though man you talk about turn one at sebring flat in an atlantic talk about reds in qualifying with max downforce turn one i mean
2: (laughs) that would be insane
0: i part of me thinks the side of the delara tub might just kind of open up like a car door and you go flying out because i don't know if it can handle that many g's throwing someone through but yeah and you know i've uh, i've missed the best question of all which thankfully i just found and pulled up and this comes in from uh, Ch- charles hall which you might have seen i think i already know what this question yes, is uh, on twitter and <laughs> i i kind of posted the same thing uh i don't know about a month ago so obviously new indy 500 winner simon pagino in last weekend's toronto winter winner has a dog named norman so charles hall asks ryan when you get to indycar will you name your dog pagino i was going to say simon but i mean there's got to be something here because norm i mean again norman perfectly normal last name that was my stepbrother's last name i'm good with that norman to name a dog that, that's that's a little wacky tabacky there. So what do you think? Does there need to be some animal-based naming retribution for the Frenchman here when you get to IndyCar? What are your thoughts?
2: Um, you know, I I like Simon. Simon's a pretty good name. I don't really know if uh, I have the time to raise a dog at this point in my life.
0: <laughs> what do you mean, but. IndyCar rookie, you know, raising a dog? Hey, get married, too, and have kids and buy a big house. I mean, just get it all done, man. Come on. <laughs>
2: So yeah, it might need to take a couple years to uh, work up to that, but um, yeah, I, I do think it's funny that Norman. Out of all the names, Norman is the the name that he decided to to give it. And, you know, I, I like the name Norman, of course. So, um, but yeah, you know, maybe maybe uh, when I get up there and get a dog someday, we'll see we'll see what we got.
0: When you win Indy, you're gonna get a dog. Tell, name yeah, it Simon. What, Does it sound like a deal?
2: Tell you what, if I if I win the Indy 500, I will uh, I will get a dog named Simon.
0: Just so you're clear, when I you enter I'll your first Indy 500, and until you win your first Indy 500, I'm going to have the SPCA or some local animal shelter on site, uh, just ready to go to rush a dog into victory lane. It's going <laughs> to happen there, man. We're not waiting, and I hope the dog likes milk uh, because you know you can't pour it all on your head.
2: You got to hold me to
0: that. All right. Well, I mean, that's easy for me to do. I make up really stupid right. crap and I forget it. But this one, I think I'm going to remember. Uh, right. Ryan Norman, thanks for making some time, my man. Thank you. Happy me. to see that, again, your your Indy Light season is going well. Not only have a win, sitting third in the points. going to have to have a pretty darn amazing close to the season here to uh, give our boy Oliver Askew. In arenas vk a really hard time for the top two spots but i know you're pushing like heck to make that happen
2: yeah i mean uh we got a mid-ohio i'm pretty good at gateway i won last year and portland i put it on pole, so you know hopefully we'll string together a couple solid weekends here and see what we got
0: awesome all right my man talk to you soon here and uh, hopefully all goes well uh, when you get ready to roll off here in mid-ohio in just a couple weeks
2: All right. Thank you. Appreciate it.
0: Questions. Oh, we've got questions. We've got your questions every day. Sorry. Couldn't help. Little take on the uh, Alex Bennett show. Used to listen to here with absolute devotion in the Bay Area on live one Oh five and his little letters jingle that would open up his morning show. I'm going to start off here with Paul Kruper, a.k.a. Pasta Fazul, from the good old Facebook. No, from Twitter. Good Lord, Pruitt. Um, I can't tell my tweeters from my book faces, unfortunately. Paul says, we hear a lot about damper programs as a way to increase the car's drivability. Is there another area of development that might not be as costly that would help a driver tune the current Delara to their driving style? So, because my ability to process things in my brain, my little head movies aren't always playing as well as they should, Paul, I thought about this for a day or two uh, and hoping to have a really awesome and insightful answer for you. I can't think of anything. And based on the cost angle, and I'll tell you why. So we hear drivers in particular tell us that, boy, the damping is so critical in making my car the way I want it versus not the car uh, that I want to drive. Dampers are really the thing in IndyCar that separate the good from the great and can also make a car horrible. That's simply because it's the one area IndyCar is left open for true individuality. We know that. We hear from team owners most often, oh, my God, are you kidding me? These things cost more. Here's a fact. A set of dampers, shocks, a set of, if you're going to buy four dampers, on average, really good ones are going to cost more. These are just four pieces of metal, four canisters. It's a lot of technology, but we're talking about four things, effectively the size of a water bottle. Cost more than a brand new Corvette. <laughs> the the cost benefit ratio certainly would appear to be way out of whack. These little things here, I mean I could hold them in my hand. That's more than a freaking Corvette. Uh Here's the I guess the hard reality, Paul. I can't think of anything that really comes to mind that if we were to move Move the baton. Say, all right, we're going to lock down dampers. Everyone's buying spec. Name the company: Olin's, Pensky, um, Multimatics, Dynamic uh, dampers and such. We're going to go to a spec solution. They're whatever the number is. We've negotiated. They're twenty-five grand, and that's what everybody has to use because we're going to cut down money uh, in that area. But here's a relative thing. We're going to open up, so we're going to trade. Every trade that comes to mind, Paul, would just be even more ridiculous. So if we're talking handling, drivability, I mean, really the one other area that makes just as big of a difference, this is the road and street course side, not the oval side. Uh, that would be the differential. So granted, buying, you know, going with different differential styles, not not going to break the bank but i'm just trying to use a real parallel here to respond we think about dampers they are infinitely tunable adjustable there's something that while the rules don't allow those changes to happen on the fly for a driver to have little knobs or little hide something servos that rotate to increase or decrease uh compression and rebound They are very easily tunable when a car pulls into pit lane. Not the case for the differential. That's some serious work involved. That's going back to the garage. So if we were to do something where tuning the transmission, tuning the differential uh, was something that you could do in a similar capacity, which is something that can be done in some other forms of the sport, yeah, it would make damper costs look like pennies. Beyond that, again, do we go into arrow? Yeah, that, that's that's going to not only break the bank, blow it up, and turn it into powder. Um, I mean, we could talk about tires, uh, a wider range of compounds and options. That's going to drive up the lease costs. From firestone because now they're having to bring if we think in formula one terms paul the reds and the blues and the greens and the browns and the magentas and all the different colors and shades of uh, tire hardness tire duration etc so i i keep coming back to this point yes a set of dampers for an indy car proper set of dampers is more than a Corvette, brand new Corvette and some other, um, you know, supercars as well, probably Acura NSX maybe. Um, I still think it's probably the cheapest way to go if we're going to leave one primary area open for teams to truly take individual routes and give their drivers uh, the options that they want to make the car handle as well as they desire going to move on to something that i foreshadowed at the opening of the show our boy will power got two questions here one from ron thompson one from eric franklin ron says will power is having a rough go right now and he has admitted he needs to be in the right headspace for things to click in your opinion is his slump tied to the alexander to team penske rumors eric franklin says That's as bad as I've seen Willie P perform in years, including looking like he didn't care if he blew the motor up, trying to get out of the turn, what was that, eight tire barrier with two laps to go. says, what does a successful season look like for him at this point? Any chance he gets the, quote, Elio boot to sports cars? Oh, boy. I have been an avowed lover of willpower uh, forever. And so, again, this is Marshall, the lifelong motor racing fan talking, not the guy who works in the sport. Love the guy. The upside on willpower is, as we, I think most of us know, it's among the most ridiculous of anyone we have seen in IndyCar, uh, I guess, since... We turned over a brand new century. This guy, when he is on it, it's just go home. <laughs> There's no reason for the rest of you to be here. Go home. It's a willpower weekend where Will's struggles have settled in. And I have not really seen this become a, any kind of long lasting fix, both Ron and Eric is that the mental side will go down as the single aspect of Willpower's career that stuck with him year to year and kept him from being a, I don't know, how many times should he be a champion realistically? Three by now? Four maybe? He could absolutely be in the conversation with a Dario Franchitti. If we're talking again, the post two thousand IndyCar greats. Also noting that Dario started, I think, in ninety seven, but still, Um, Will could, Will should be in that conversation as a minimum three timer, realistically four timer, maybe five, along with Dixon. Should, could, would, and that's because there is some sort of mental derailing that crops up. It's a weird thing. I'm going to spend a little bit of time on this one just because this is a side of the sport that probably fascinates me as much, if not more, than almost anything else playing very super amateur psychologist here. It's the same thing Takuma Sato has dealt with throughout his career. And so (laughs) I never really thought I'd be making power and Sato parallels. Difference being though, Takuma is having these same issues and not dominating power. On the other hand has been the guy who finished, who has, four second place finishes in IndyCar championships and two thirds. I mean, he was third last year, third in, uh, 2015, 16, I believe, uh, maybe 2015, but someone who is always there or thereabouts, but the thereabouts part instead of the, there part more often than not has been down to him compared to cruel luck Mechanical failures. If it weren't for a botched pit stop, the title would have been yours. Just, it's an interesting thing to think of someone who has so much talent, knowing how many pole positions he has as as IndyCar's pole man. We can safely say that during this modern era, especially since he came into the IndyCar series following his. Uh, Two years or so in Champ Car, there's been no one faster. No one <laughs> faster than Will Power. He is IndyCar's fastest driver. He has the pole positions to open the argument and close it immediately. He has a ridiculous number of wins as well. I think our man Robin Miller mentioned during the broadcast 31 wins? I mean, it's, it's crazy. What's weird though is instead of it being a ridiculous number of wins and also a matching number of seconds and thirds, it's, Oh, well, there's an 11th following the win. There's a seventh. There's an 18th. Ooh, boy, ninth, um, That's been the odd part. And so coming off of a Toronto where qualifying was not wonderful on a track where qualifying makes all the difference between having a shot at winning or not being able to recover from a silly, it was never going to happen. It was very clear that it should have been very clear that Graham Rahal Was trying to make a pass going into eight and you're stacking up, going down the super inside of eight where that never works at that angle. That never works unless you're alongside the driver uh, while you're still pointed straight heading towards turn eight, actually being pointed straight as someone's turning in and going towards the inside of eight. It's just one of those things. It's not on which he later acknowledged. Then later locking up the brakes into eight and stuffing the car into the tires with whatever it was, two laps to go, just completely out of sorts and being able to recover mentally as, as you guys have noted, Ron and Eric, that's the part where it's not fragility. It's just this kind of hair trigger thing that Will has yet to get a handle on. And so for years and years and years, we would have discussions in December, maybe January. All right, man, what's your approach this year? What's the thing you're going to do to get yourself locked into a really good mental space so you can go on a championship run? And I, we, we haven't had those in a little while, but I love those conversations. And it'd be a half hour, hour long, maybe. Super insightful stuff. I'm going to do this differently I'm going to try that. It would be one year. It would be, I'm going to be the biggest data hound there is. I'm going to pour through everything, every setup sheet. I'm just going to be, you know, a, a mental magician, keeping all the information possible in my head, thinking about everything we've ever done in the minute. Something seems to go sideways on chassis setup, whatever it is, I'm going to come back. Oh, you remember at this place we did this and that fixed the similar feeling I'm having now, and that's how I'm going to help keep things on the rails. And inevitably, he'd run v- super well, but there'd be a couple instances where a mistake behind the wheel, whatever it was, derailed him. The next year would be the opposite, not doing a thing. I'm not looking at data. I know how to drive a race car. I don't need to see squiggly lines. I don't need to remember what springs around the car two years ago at this track. I'm just going to be a pure driver and simplify my mind total opposite last year pack it with info this year going to be like water be fluid more or less similar result at the end couple wins three four wins maybe who knows bunch of pole positions but a couple of things went sideways a couple things went wrong a couple mistakes were made and second place third place something what's just a little strange here is we're looking at someone with more than a decade of driving for the same team who's had the same engineer now for roughly that entire time at Team Penske. It's just strange to see someone who is so good, so capable, who's now, you know, we could probably say, not the latter stages of his career, but he's 38. You know, we're not looking at him doing this for another 15 years. Just really odd to see how this hair trigger thing never quite get rid of it, just like Sato. Uh, So knowing that he won last year at Gateway, it's awesome. Uh, Quote, winless streak is not that long. Off the top of my head, though, I think we have to go back quite a ways to when we got to this point in the season, 10 races, 11 races down, and Will had yet to win. Uh, I think 2013 might have been that last time. Um, Last year, he'd won the Indy GP and the Indy 500, year before uh, what he won the Indy GP and I think Texas the year before, uh, I think it was Detroit and our return to road America. Um, anyways, keep moving back and you go, all right, there's usually at least one win, just a little strange to see will now still at 38, having to fight through that thing that he's never been able to extinguish. Another thing to throw in just a quick parallel. Uh, Pagino as well has been very much that guy. Uh, he's either of late devastating or by comparison, nowhere. And, uh, team Penske's version of nowhere seventh at the finish line for team Penske is a 14th, uh, to them. It just almost doesn't matter that you are in the race. So the one rock <laughs> oddly at team Penske is the youngest one of all, Joseph Newgarden. Uh, that kid is seemingly unflappable. And when he has a bad day, it's third, it's fourth. Boy, if things really, really are falling apart for Newgarden, we're talking about, I don't know, what, fifth, sixth? I mean, so just, yeah, find it odd that the driver with the least amount of experience at the team, also the youngest physically, is actually the one who seems to be the least influenced by mental fluctuations or any changes, any adversity in his surroundings. I don't know what the answer is here to make this stop or go away. I really don't. I, I don't know. And I say that because this is something Will's been searching for, for more than 10 years now. How do I root that thing out? And yeah, it might just be, might just be his story. This might just be the permanent story of what has followed him throughout his career. The two other questions you guys threw in Ron, one about could the Rossi rumors be tied to his slump? 100% unrelated. Keep in mind that he signed a multi-year extension last year after winning the eighty five hundred. Uh Will's, unless there's some crazy thing going on we don't know about, there's not a lot to be concerned about here. Uh, Eric, you also mentioned, would he possibly get the Elio boot to sports cars? As someone who, other than, I think, a couple of V8 supercar races back in the day, uh, earlier this decade, Will has not been a sports car driver. It's really not something he's ever been, been pining to do seriously and I would struggle to see that being something that happens I don't know if any of this is real but at least in my head Eric I think that when Will is done driving an car for Roger Penske I know that he loves racing and I know that he will probably want to continue racing I'm just not sure where that would be within the Penske organization there's also, and this is, I'm not going to crack open the sports car side too much because I have a separate show, The Weekend Sports Cars, you might check out. There's no guarantee that when the season ends or the year after or whenever Will's contract uh, is up with Penske and is in need for uh, either an extension or who knows, maybe a modification of what he drives for Rogers, there's no guarantee the Acura DPI program is going to be in team Penske's hands and I'll leave it at that for now but yeah there's not necessarily a guarantee it's going to be there it could very well could still be there but yeah and we're talking the boot they've got two full-time drivers for each car they run a two-car effort for Acura and in those cars you have Elio Castroneves obviously Juan Montoya you have ricky taylor you have dane cameron i can't think of any of the four full-timers who i would pull out of the car to put in will because i don't think will would be better than any of them and that's nothing negative against will at all it's if anything vouching for how good ricky taylor and dane cameron happen to be those guys are monsters If anything, I'd love to see one of those two get a shot in Rogers, one of Roger's IndyCars. I think Ricky of the two would be the one that shocked folks because he's just so unknown in IndyCar. But going the opposite way, I mean, Montoya loves what he's doing, truly loves being in that car and has been on fire of late. He and Dane have won a couple of races and really has connected with this car. Elio, been super fast. If anything, oddly, Elio's been a little bit of the the bigger variable. Ricky has been the the anchor of that entry. So, funnily, Eric, maybe kind of, sort of of the of the four full timers. Not saying Elio needs to get the boot. Just saying that if I was going to consider swapping one person out, I might actually see how Will did paired up with Ricky Taylor. Funnily, I'm hearing rumors, and it's not worth writing about yet, maybe at all, but uh, I keep hearing that Elio really wants to get back to IndyCar and really wants to get back to IndyCar. It's been very strange. I don't know about you all. It's been strange seeing him driving the IndyCar two-seater. Um, I'm not saying those who drive the two-seater are lesser drivers, I'm just saying that for a three-time Indy 500 winner to be driving the two-seater at Toronto, I uh, I don't know. It seems like a great thing for a legend like a Mario Andretti. Who, good lord! I mean, he's having fun. He doesn't get to drive anything. You know, he's not on the racetrack driving anything else. He loves it. It's a perfect thing. It's the biggest honor for those who are taken for rides. That makes total sense. Then there are younger drivers, uh the Connor Daly's, the Gabby Chavez's, and we can name quite a few others. Or those who don't have a ride, and it's just something that keeps them connected to the series. I love that. I, I just just something that doesn't seem right. It, it seems. It seems below what I would expect for someone of Elio's stature to be driving around the two-seater. So that's just me. It's meaningless. I just, hmm. So I wonder if part of that is just this thing he has inside of him craving to get back. Also knowing that when his final season of IndyCar was completed and he moved over to the Acura DPI effort, Uh, in 2018 you know he's coming off of yet another highly competitive indycar season in the mix for the championship so obviously he has not gotten any younger but i would say that yeah it might be interesting might be interesting will's by no means ready to be out the door going to another series just part of me wonders it really seems like Elia would love to get back to IndyCar, at least for another season or two, um, whether that would be with Team Penske or not. I'll just park that for right now. Uh, let's go to Ryan Terpstra. Hey, Ryan. who says, it's not just me, right? Robert Wickens looked insanely comfortable in that Acura, like he was out for a Sunday drive. Having his fiance Carly with him was brilliant. That was a wonderful thing to see. We've had a couple other folks as well asked something along the lines of hand controls in IndyCar, and those seem to be coming in at a more regular clip, which I love. Uh, I think seeing Robert's recovery has really got folks thinking about, is it possible before he has full function of his legs again for him to get back to IndyCar? Andy Bauer uh, continued this saying, Concerning Robert's potential and hopeful uh, return to IndyCar, what technical regulation hurdles exist for things like hand controls or rules around driver self-extraction in potential accidents? He says, I'm sure the series will be supportive, but has there been much thought put to those things yet? Something like this come in a few weeks ago, Andy, I believe, and I sent a quick email off to IndyCar President Jay Fry and just said, hey, hand controls, wiki, or michael johnson or who knows someone else who does not have a lower leg control at the moment but can certainly use hand controls all day long you open to it would you you know how far would you be willing to go to explore this and it wasn't a really long detailed answer but jay did indicate yeah you know we're, we're open to the concept we're we're uh, looking into it a little bit i would say it Keep in mind that IndyCar is also trying to do a whole lot of other things right now. So uh, turning this into an all day, we just have to explore this to the very end on our own up front. I would say it's probably nowhere close to that being a priority for them. Definitely, though, the the point that Andy raises and Ryan also brings up here, Robert looks like (laughs) if. He was able to, because his Aerosmith Peterson Honda had the technology in the cockpit, he would be racing this weekend in Iowa. I would say definitely, though, Andy raises a great point, which is maybe modified or moved the target a little bit, and that is if we are talking today's car, I would think that hand controls having the ability to accelerate and brake and shift all through the steering wheel i think wiki would be in a car and competing from a self-extraction standpoint uh, i think there would obviously be some work to try and come up with something that would allow him to try and get out in the event of an accident or make it easier for the amr safety crew to get to him and extract him adding in the halo plus arrow screen. I think that is, that's the thing that would make this a much more difficult solution to come up with, not from the hand control standpoint, but from the extraction standpoint. And it's just the practical side in, not a lot of instances but in a few cases I have had in when I was a mechanic and otherwise had to help extract a driver from a car very quickly uh could have been a fire they could have crashed somewhat nearby and you know usually it's at like a test day where a driver has a crash has some sort of issue and you don't have you know the full staff of uh flaggers on every corner and all kinds of safety folks ready to react so you know, you run across the track and help the person again, a couple of different scenarios like that. The thing that's key is you, you know, you run over, you put your knee on the side pod, you, you know, uh, kind of straddle the front of the car and do what you can get the belts undone. And usually it's not much more than that. If you have to kind of pull the twist the driver, do something to get them up and moving. You can, if you really had to, you could spin around the back of the car and with the uh, little epaulets on the driver's shoulders, pull them up. Hard though, if we're talking cockpit openings, when, if we think of the cars today, and Indy car specifically, we have the head surround. So you can't, for the most part, have straight access to the driver's shoulders uh, without having to uh, unclip the head surround and pull that out of the way. But still, that's something that can be done quickly. Even the driver, provided they're able to in the, in a crash or otherwise, aren't injured, don't have injured hands, can get that process going. But The key point here is in a very short amount of time, you can have the head surround out of the way, and provided there's no head or neck injuries, and you can just simply start getting the driver out of the car, you have the access to do that coming in from the side of the cockpit and from a getting hands in and leverage. You can get three or four folks to do that pretty easily, if not just do it yourself. Where things get a little bit complicated here when we're talking about this arrow screen plus halo is you've now moved the entry point up significantly higher. And so coming in from the side, Definitely not not that easy now, and also because of the height to do this as well, you're coming in, I, I just think of what we have today and in most open-wheel cars of being fairly simple and easy to get in if you have a driver that needs help. And in this case, Robert, if we're talking about using hand controls, we can again assume his legs are not going to be a big help in extraction at least Uh, you're going to have to come in unbuckle things possibly at minimum get access to his shoulders beneath his arms on the epaulets on the suit try and pull him up well if you now have this elevated structure one that is rigid as well that's that's mount bolted to the car in multiple points so it's not something that removes easily you have this that is now tall and upright that is kind of now top of the helmet height Uh, i just tend to think of getting above this standing above this and having to reach down deep in there and your arms almost being like tweezers, basically <laughs> having not a lot of space to expand outwards, having to kind of shrug your shoulders in and reach down to work within this very confined space created by the arrow screen plus the uh, the good old wishbone that we have there holding that structure in place. And that's where I think a lot of development would have to take place for Robert, or any other driver to use hand controls because now it's no longer easy for folks one or two on each side of the car to just reach right into the cockpit uh, and have ready access to pull up, to lift up. You've now created a very vertical thing, which is, again, a great point that you're raising here, Andy. It's now, by and large, a completely vertical maneuver, also in more restricted space there's only so many hands that can get in and i'm not trying to be funny here but i'm about six one six two in a good day but about six one i mean i'm just saying height might actually become a criteria Uh, if we're talking a an extraction scenario like this where you kind of need to be taller than whatever it ends up being uh, to be able to get in and help if you have to do that Um, if you need multiple people to be able to reach over and down into the cockpit to help get a driver out, just saying someone with a shorter stature truly might not be able to help. And so I realize that there are many things that a a safety worker and AMR person can do uh, that don't involve getting into the cockpit. But I am also just trying to be realistic here saying, Hey, (laughs) if you're going to have to help someone, and they can't get out. Even if it's a a fully-abled driver, just pick whomever it is. Ryan Hunter-Ray, Santino ferrucci I don't care. Pick any driver who just say they've had a bad crash, they've hurt their legs, uh, they're dazed, you know, whatever it is. Think of a scenario where the safety crew must extract the driver. Let's just add another thing in, too. Maybe there's a little fire going on. Maybe they're in... You know, maybe the, the fire response truck hasn't gotten there as quickly as you would want. Fire extinguishers aren't working. You know, I mean, I'm just painting a little bit of a silly scenario here. I'm just trying to drive home the point that it's not as if getting a driver out right now is an instant thing. It takes a little bit of work, heads around. I mean, again, it takes a moment or two. Just this reduced access safety system. And that's what it is. If we're talking in a crash and having to extract someone, this arrow screen, uh, plus the good old wishbone that sits behind it, um, this little halo is going to do great things for protecting drivers with things flying at them where I am very confident there's going to need to be a significant amount of time spent figuring out best practices uh, it's definitely going to be in this type of scenario where we need to get someone out, able-bodied or not. How do we do that? Because now we can't have a bunch of people dive right into the cockpit. Um, we, we are very, now very limited. Uh, it is going to have to be a higher uh, entry point. Will there be, again, not being silly, will there be the addition of small step stools onto safety response trucks to help get folks up to that height? There's only some, there's, I guess, really only one, maybe two people that could fit uh, straddling the back of the car, the uh, you know, coming from behind over the engine cover and roll hoop to reach down, to get in. You might, in theory, be able to have one person standing on the left side pod, one on the other. It's just something that I know is going to need a lot of thought. So could there be a system like they had in Formula One a little while ago where the universal design for seats made such a thing where the seat itself was kind of the gurney that you lifted granted gurneys tend to be flat or flat ish but the seats were installed made in such a way where the driver strapped into that seat could be pulled out using the seat could that be an adjustment that's needed during the off season where The item that the driver sits on is also the extraction device that everyone can pull in, grab, and then pull out. Again, all having to go through this narrow portal, though, to make that happen. Is there a scenario where the arrow screen itself can be somewhat quickly removed from the halo structure? The halo itself being bolted down rigidly to the roll hoop on both sides and to where the advanced frontal protection device currently sits, that's not going to be a quick one. That's not going to be something that folks, at least as I envision it, unless they come up with some sort of, there's a couple ways they might be able to do it. But I can't think of anything that would be super easy or quick to unbolt the halo From the chassis right now but could getting the aero screen off the car which would at least allow folks to come in from the sides to expedite things get some hands on things there could that be something that is looked at that might be the only thing that jumps out andy so again a little bit of a longer discussion on this but it's funny uh before sebastian and i started recording i think we touched on this topic a little bit too and not wanting to speak negatively of indycar because it's not doesn't warrant it but there is definitely there's definitely a launching of an initiative here with the arrow screen that i'm behind there's also definitely a lot of things that still need to be figured out from just a functional standpoint how do you do some things How does the installation of this device impact wide-ranging things, how we do things? And it's pretty clear that once they are on the cars, once we have them in place during the off-season, the AMR safety team, IndyCars, technical department, you name it, are going to have a fairly serious initiative in front of them to assess their current practices decide which ones they are going to have to throw out because they no longer work or apply with this structure in place how to do things now in as good if not better a way than they do in terms of driver extraction or just tending to a driver in a crash what areas are now inferior If the average time it takes to extract a driver in a crash today is, I'm just throwing out a round number, 20 seconds. What does that become with this? Is it 22? Is it 25? Yeah, who knows? Maybe I'm totally off. Is it 18? Well, again, they're going to have to run through and find out what can we do the same, better, or worse, and then obviously focus on the worse and try and come up with some solutions another part to this too this is where things start to get a little bit interesting you really don't want to wait until the thing's fully designed to have to figure out what's worse and then to correct them so the item of removal of say the screen itself from the halo is that something they're looking at just strictly from a Critical driver removal type scenario. Driver's knocked unconscious badly, isn't coming to. They might have some cuts, bruises, might have something very severe. Can't wait. How do we get in? Do we need? uh, Again, I'm just throwing. These are the things you don't know what's going to happen, so you kind of have to run through them. Have a, a, a Terry Trammell involved from the outset. What if we need to get an IV going on a driver in the car? because they're trapped in there momentarily or for a little bit. There's who knows, how do we get to a driver and do some very critical things that today we can do, but with a rigid structure, making it much more challenging to get to them. How do we do that going forward? These are the things you're going to have to think through. And I know that they know this stuff, Andy, I just don't know if they know how intense it's going to be to get these things figured out before signing off and mounting these cars, mounting these cars with these devices and saying, everything's good in all capacities. Let's go to Dead Squirrel. I love names on social media. Dead Squirrel says the NASCARification of IndyCar seems to be growing with the hype of any disagreement between drivers. Do you accept this or think it does not belong? I would assume you're referring to the Sebastian Bourdais Takuma Sato thing. There's also the mention of a willpower um, Felix Rosenquist head slap, I believe, at some point this year. Um, my main thought when I read this, Mr. or Mrs. Dead Squirrel, was I think it really depends on your age and how long you have been following the sport. So if you are somewhat newish to motor racing and have just not seen a bunch of these things in IndyCar, it might stand out as a little little boorish. Oh, great. So Sato grabs his helmet and they have a little, you know, FU. No, FU for what was it? 15 seconds 20 seconds and yet nbc sports replayed it (laughs) multiple times after it happened it definitely was was glued in to part of the coverage after the exchange was captured and are we just dumbing things down and playing to the lowest common denominator i get that i could get how that could be the reaction and it wouldn't be wrong wouldn't be right just be your reaction been around a little longer you might have seen that all right so it's not totally uncommon and although we really don't see that in formula one much they tend to be a little it tends to be more words and quippy than uh physical but certainly an in IndyCar, yeah uh, it's not uh hasn't been uncommon robin miller just put together a story he's been wanting to do for a couple years now of, of driver disagreements and fights nascar for sure hasn't become so much of a thing um it's not crazy but there's certainly been some really good ones uh really really good ones um i it's part of the sport i know it's it's that's maybe it might sound like a cop out of an answer but as someone who grew up in addition to racing loving the major stick and ball sports in our country here in good old United States, someone who spent the majority of his youth playing organized baseball, um, basketball, football. I I turn on any of those three sports and it might not happen every game. It doesn't happen every game, but there's going to be some sort of fight. There's going to be some sort of thing that gets broken up usually once a week, at least in those three sports. Uh, If not, punches thrown, pushes, arguing, finger wagging, throwing the ball, throwing the something. You know, uh, hitters get beaned every day by pitchers intentionally. Uh, In football, good Lord. I mean, it's kind of a controlled fight the entire time. Those guys are always going off on one another. Basketball definitely can get a little bit punchy. Technical fouls. Are getting called all the time here in the bay area uh my man draymond green's kind of the 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 artist of Tex. um so to me it's just part of sport i haven't mentioned hockey because hockey is actually just fighting on ice and for fun between fights they have sticks and kind of hit little pucky things around that's just a sideshow that's just the uh that's just the filler between fights it's just kind of Part of sport you've got, it even happens in soccer. Those tend to be kind of cute, but, um, look, it's organized sport. You have men and women either together or in separate sports and they're competing really hard and they get mad at each other and feel like they've been done wrong. And sometimes they feel the need to let that manifest in physical ways outside the realm of competition totally normal. I mean heck, if we're talking sport, we have sports where that's all people do. They get in a cage, they get in a ring, and they punch each other in the head until the other one falls asleep or kick him in the head or so. I just don't think of this as NASCARification, Mr. or Mrs. Dead Squirrel. Again, this is just with someone who's you know been in the sport for a little while. I just think of it as normal. I'd maybe say the opposite. Actually, I think I'm surprised at how few fisticuffs and angry grabbings of things. I might be surprised how rare those things are compared to how many laps are turned, how many times drivers pass one another side by side, how many little things. If I think of the amount of contact that takes place in your average car race, the amount of errors made, and the fact that somewhat big, Graham Rahal didn't get out of the car after the race and go find Will Power and punch him for that lap one mistake. Can't I, <laughs> I I'm blown away by the fact that drivers are as civil as they are. So I don't think of it as NASCARification. I don't think NBC Sports overhyped anything. I think it's the opposite. It's that it happens so rarely. That it's kind of a unicorn moment where you go, oh, hey, whoa, hey, take a look at this. And hey, did you miss this yesterday? You got to see this thing because we kind of don't see it that often. If it happened more often and they were still playing it up a bunch, I'd say maybe that's the part where I would think it was being dramatized too heavily. Something that, you know, this isn't a political statement. This is a human being living in the United States. We are in such constant assault on a daily, truly a daily basis of lies, claims, false claims, accusations, the left hates the right, the right hates the left, this group hates that group, red, blue, the, we're, our senses are just assaulted on such a nonstop basis of people yelling at one another, saying that the way they think, the way they act, the way they do, everything is wrong. That to me, that's the thing that I would say we've basically become a NASCARified country (laughs) where everything is blown up and everything is overhyped and just it's 24 hours a day of nonstop sensory assault. I actually don't mind at all that IndyCar has become a little bit of a sanctuary in that regard where yeah okay we just kind of go racing for the most part you know a little grumpiness every now and then the fact that we have the tiniest guy in indycar basically going after you know going after Bourdais, the sweetest guy as i mentioned with seb that's the hilarious thing i don't know why that was not picked up on or or Uh, made part of the narrative when it was being re-aired but anyways i just know that i can almost i don't watch cable news i i I can't (laughs) pick any of the channels fox and msnbc cnn i watch none of it i really don't even watch local news Uh, i try the stuff that i read i look for stuff to be straight down the middle where no one's telling me how to think no one's telling me how I should feel truly just try and separate as much of the noise that has come to fill our daily lives. No matter again, who you voted for, who you, this, who again, none of that stuff matters to me. I just know that whomever you are, there's so much noise coming at you from some angle. I love the fact that while, our country has seemingly become nascar Indeed, Mr. or Mrs. Dead Squirrel, I will take a little dust-up like this on pit lane at Toronto, just as pure amusement, because it doesn't happen very often, and it's kind of cute, and it maybe points out the just insanity that seems to be uh, the norm outside of IndyCar. Uh, let's go to Mike Stoops. Mike, you've become someone on a weekly basis who tends to send in some really interesting or thought-provoking technical questions or just something in that general vein. So just wanted to thank you there. He says, Hey, I saw from Lee Diffie a couple of days ago. This was a a tweet that Lee had sent out, I think in response to someone asking about a third manufacturer and Lee said it will happen something along those lines. So, So we have Lee quote, seemingly confirming a third manufacturer's coming as some have received it mike also says you've been hinting a hybrid element might come into play and he says santino ferrucci says no and what do you know um so as i received as i saw lee's tweet that you included here i received that as lee just stating a positive expectation not inside knowledge. So, and none of that is is being disrespectful to my friend Lee saying he doesn't know stuff. That's the opposite of what I'm saying. I just didn't receive this as Lee breaking any kind of news. I think it was Lee kind of stating what many of us believe that a third manufacturer will be here. It is going to happen at some point in time. There's no real date on the calendar for that happening though. From what I know, There's no third manufacturer signed up. And so do I believe it's going to happen? Likely? Yes. Is it in the works? No. You mentioned the hybrid element, Mike, and maybe this is meant as a little bit of disrespect to Santino. And that's a little tongue in cheek. Um, I wouldn't look to Santino Ferrucci for inside IndyCar information. And not because he isn't smart. It's not because he hasn't been told things or heard things from IndyCar's leadership, would just say that you know my leading source of information for indycar news is probably going to come from a reporter not from a driver and or at least a rookie driver uh there are some others tend to have some really good information and can't always use it uh but yeah i would say young santino and i actually texted with him afterwards said hey because we had a couple folks mike say hey Frucci saying there's no no hybrid coming uh, i guess that's a fact and that's something he was told by IndyCar's leadership, and I don't want to set him on a different path in his beliefs. Just say that in what I have been suggesting as a possibility of hybrids being on the table for discussion, I, have, I wouldn't be mentioning it if it wasn't real and if it wasn't something that could happen not is going to happen, could happen. Uh, And this isn't something that came out of nowhere. This isn't something dreamt up or that I heard from some fools. Uh, This, you know, again, this is just something that I know on background, quote, rumored. uh, I know that, you know, on background, this is something that is being taken as a very serious thing to explore. Uh, I do believe that if we were to see it happen, which I've mentioned a couple of times in recent episodes. We've got two options. One would be for the hybrid system to come in if they were to adopt such a thing with the new engines here in 2021, or what I think would be more likely and make more sense is to integrate it into the brand new chassis that is meant to be here for 2022. So being explored, can't say if it's going to happen or not, uh, but I would say any statement that is not happening, period, end of statement, um, I would not. The reason I haven't been saying that is because it is not the truth. Let's go to John Sable. So this is just a comment. There's a new contender for best livery of the year. The number 10 Cessna car was a beauty. Have to absolutely agree, John. I think Felix Rosenquist's car, the black and blue, Was just gorgeous. Also love Sebastian's beautiful blue Mauser car, which might tell you that I just love the color blue. Uh, Ryan Terpstra again says, for MP, not a question, just the LED panels worked last weekend. I think that's what we need to do here, guys. Uh, And Ryan, you, you maybe need to help me with some ideas on sponsors. We need to have a weekly sponsored, did the LED panels work or not? update and i mean clearly this is a monumental thing they functioned i'm sure there's also a time where on a couple of cars they didn't but you know uh nonetheless we need to come up with uh, you know a segment each week it might only last 30 seconds but hey the led panels it's become a weekly topic of discussion do they work don't they work what's wrong we have another question here in a little bit regarding panels as well uh, save that for a little bit later. Let's go to Jaime Macias. Hey there, Jaime. Uh, thank you for sending this in. Been uh, been a little while since we've seen one another. I'm trying to remember whether it was Sonoma last year or the year before. Um, me and my failing memory yet again. Fun, fun question that you have sent in here. You said, hey, if we des- divided, not decided, divided. Good Lord. It's one of the the pleasures of getting up. At sometime around 5 a.m. each day and going to bed past midnight uh yeah uh, it's still morning early morning and uh, i'm already starting to fade uh jaime says if we divided the indycar grid into four categories based on pure talent on top alone will be scott dixon but how would you divide the other three categories he also adds dixon is the best of his generation is he part of the friend generation and he said none of dixon's championships uh, well, while running, Heedy was in a full season and he was the only teammate to beat Dixon. <clears throat> the last part here, Jaime, is the one that I really love because it's, it's the question that I don't think is ever going to be resolved in Dixon's favor. It's not a bad thing to me, just an interesting component of his career. So if we look at dixie's five championships Uh, they have come in interesting spurts right the uh, the narrative uh, for a while there was every five years scott dixon will be the champion (laughs) he won his first title in 2003 his second in 2008 Uh, his third came in 2013 then he's started to pick up the frequency added another in 2015 and then obviously did that again last year in 2018. Interesting, though, you mention Dario and Dixie's ability to win, while Dario was a full-time participant, and if we look at the fact that in Dario's first title year, 2007, uh, Dixie was second, so followed right behind him in the points. Dario left for NASCAR in 2008 and Dixie won his second title that year. Uh, Move on. And again, a little while uh, until his next title in 2013. But Dario was the person who was, once he came back from NASCAR, was just obviously on an epic, epic run of title success. Interesting dynamics. And, I have said and been saying that Dixon is the greatest of his generation for a while now. Uh, I think, you know, leading up to his third championship uh, was at least as I th- seem to think when I started mentioning, I-, I viewed him as the greatest of his generation. I don't know if that sat very well with um, my friend, Mr. Frank and rightfully so. But the thing that stands out to me where I place Dixon there. It doesn't have anything to do with the number of championships. I was saying that I think when he was coming up on a three-time or just become a three-time champ, Dario was already at that point a four-time champ. Um, the thing for Dario that <clears throat> he and I discussed, and this was, I'm trying to remember, it might have been 2009 or so. We had a really fascinating phone call. was trying to just explore the switch that got flipped for him. Maybe it was 2010. Again, uh, please don't hold me to the exact year. But the conversation was about, good Lord, man, you are just, you're on fire. You are really, really uh, the guy, the man to beat here. I think it was 2009 after his second title. And so that was two IndyCar championships in three years. Obviously, he stepped away to NASCAR in 2008, uh, but yeah, left as a champ, returned and then became a champ again, won three in a row. Now, three in a row is no, absolutely no joke, but the conversation we had, and this is maybe leading towards why I placed Dixie not better, I mean, uh, yeah, I'm not saying Dixon is better, Greatness, I guess, is one of those weird things where there's no individual standard. Uh, it's a very personal thing. <clears throat> I look at what Dario did winning that title with the Andretti Green Racing Team in 2007. Came back first year back, uh, this time now with Chip Ganassi Racing, as Dixie's teammate and won in 2009 and won two more times back-to-back-to-back. Uh, to back to back. And said, hey, so when you came in to IndyCar with Hogan Racing, that Hogan team wasn't exactly in a place where you were going to be vying for titles. But you moved to Team Green, and boy, knowing that first year or two still, they're gelling, they've got this Honda Renard uh, Firestone package. You're still having to figure out everything exactly the way you wanted it to be. So I think that there's something there. I think there's something within Sage that can be developed behind the wheel to a higher degree. He just hasn't really had that chance since 2015. And at the Indy 500, we've seen him be rather competitive. Uh, Often, not always, but often with the Dry and Reinbold team doing a one-off, which is getting much harder to do every year for every team, every driver doing a one-off for the 500. I just look at him and say, man, the kid realized he didn't have Um, you know, a two or three year plan that he could work into and be developed. Didn't have a lengthy period with a Ganassi team. Again, multi-year being coached, being developed and, and shaped into, uh, the best that he could be. And so he drove as hard as he could, tried to make an impression. And now, you know, now that he's getting a second shot, don't know for how long here, but now two weeks in a row with Carlin racing, um, I hope, that he is able to do well and impress folks again this weekend in Iowa, as he did getting onto the podium back in 15. Just also realize that the overriding thing that comes to mind for me, Gary is he's still that 2015 IndyCar driver who needs to be developed, who needs time and opportunity to get better, to be influenced by race engineers, strategists, just you name it on how to, continue getting better at what it what is required to be a top line Car driver that stopped at the end of 15 and so what we're seeing today is someone who realizes I better do all I can to make people happy and make people like me and keep this door open and keep this education going because he unfortunately is not at a place where he can just come in and dominate because Uh, Didn't have the time to really develop his skills to that point. So that's what I love. Uh, There's a pretty consistent feeling that I have and mention, and it's that when I'm really big on a driver, it's because a young driver, it's due to potential. It's seeing that they have the potential to do big things and hoping they or their team find a way to make that come to life all right we are down to our last page of questions i'm going to mash the throttle a little bit here mike jablo says marshall what is your take on the recent changes of personnel in the indycar communications and marketing departments why the big changes in the middle of the season that's referring to former i think his title was vp of communications kurt Cavan, being moved i will not call it sideways i mean got to be honest it's a Downward move. I don't know if demotion is the right word, but um, it's a big shakeup here. Uh, It was pretty obvious it was coming, I think, since spring training at Circuit of the Americas where some new consultants came in. Uh, Mike Zizzo primarily is the one who was brought in as a consultant to try and look at ways to improve the communications and marketing department. A uh, woman who goes by SJ, she came in uh, from Nike trying to shake things up and youthify IndyCar and make it super social media and millennial friendly. And uh, I know that's been her initiative and she is held in very high regard uh, on the. So that was a, you know, call it full time hire. But the assessment aspect had been going on with Ziz in charge of that helping a bit brought in by jay fry to see if and what could be done better we'll definitely mention here that yeah the timing is one that stood out as a huh all right we got a couple of weeks between races here this somewhat brief break between road America and toronto i my guess purely guess is they wanted to make changes to quote give folks time to find other opportunities by doing it now instead of the end of the season i would just say that usually the middle of the season is when opportunities are not available (laughs) they usually become available at the end of the season so i i not sure i get that one maybe i'm missing something tell you the changes that have been made were very surprising to myself and robin miller I know Robin, in particular, sent some heated thoughts to IndyCar's leadership about some of the folks that were kept and some of the folks that were let go. Uh, have heard that there were some offers to stay, but at a pretty big discount uh, in salary. Um, yeah i I think that there was a definite need for a change. I can't vouch for how it was handled the position Kurt had coming in as a long time reporter for the Indianapolis star. That's the job I was offered by Mark miles. I think January end of December, beginning of January, 2017. I think brain is farting a little bit on the exact timing and I turned it down, thanked Mark for that, uh, thanked him for thinking of me as someone who uh, he wanted to have in that role as his VP of communications. I just did not see that as a good fit for hashtag me personally, knowing knowing who I am, the things that I like, my value system and what makes me happy, what motivates me. Uh, doing series based communications wasn't the thing that jumped out as what would really plug me into that, uh, when the offer was made. So knowing that I would probably be a guy that within a span of a year, uh, which would also involve moving to Indianapolis, my wife and I, and she obviously has a full life and career and expertise separate from mine. So it's not like me getting an offer to do this and then it being based in Indy means we go to Indy. Uh, As you might've heard me mention before, my wife's the breadwinner in the house. So uh, quite the opposite. Uh, Her job is definitely a high priority one. Uh, Wouldn't necessarily mean I'd be able to accept it even if I wanted to, but I just realized it wasn't the right fit for me. So I said, thank you to Mark, but declined. I believe that offer then, I don't know who all it went to afterwards, but it certainly went to Kurt who accepted that. And I, I can't claim to be good friends with Kurt. Don't dislike him. Just not somebody who uh, I know very well or, or makes himself very available on that front. But just knowing what I know of Kurt, having interacted with him for decades, if I thought it was a bad fit for me, I thought it was a terrible fit for him. And it wasn't because he lacks the ability to communicate so much. It's just of the things I could have seen myself doing in that role. While I know I would have been miserable much sooner than later, at least I have a background managing people, having to plan things. This is on the team side. This is running racing teams, but it's still having to look out onto a shop floor, see however many people have to set big plans in motion. Uh, There's a lot of strategery, a lot of organization, a lot of interpersonal work and unless my my knowledge is incorrect i don't believe that was ever a part of kurt's career at the indie star not saying he didn't have an intern not saying he didn't maybe work alongside somebody i just don't believe kurt was in a position where he had a staff of five or ten was responsible for all of them dictated policy set a year-long strategy uh etc etc and so the thought of Kurt taking that role um i just was concerned that he was not only being asked to do something that he had no expertise in doing but that he was accepting something that was going to end up being a bad fit and it was clear from the outset that this was not a job he should have hired uh being offered that job which i'm sure involved a very serious salary bump and all kinds of things it's a hard job to turn down i'm not saying that i'm special for turning it down i just knew that yeah it's going to pay a lot of money uh, by comparison uh but just knew it wasn't going to head in the right direction i can see why others though would have said well this is a pretty cool thing and this could be a long-term thing if it works out i will roll the dice It doesn't surprise me that despite having the best intentions, uh, this is something that now, uh, however long, a year and a half, two and a half years into this, whatever the duration was, uh, this was kind of wound backwards and there was a realization that this needed to change. So uh, what has happened is Kurt is no longer the VP of communications and in charge of the, uh, the PR side of the series he has been moved back to a writing and editorial role that certainly is directly in his wheelhouse in a perfect world that would have been the job he was offered and the job he accepted because that certainly plays to his strengths and experience the thing that i don't fully get and robin and i don't get is in order to make that space available, they let the pretty awesome Mark Robinson go and yeah. Um, I'll just mention this cause again, this isn't me talking smack. This is just me saying what, what is known, um, at the star. Kurt was not known for breaking a lot of news and that's because, I don't know if trust existed there among himself between himself and the paddock that will change obviously because when indycar is going to make some sort of major decision obviously it would go to him first so he'd be able to present that breaking news that leading edge stuff as the main content provider for indycar.com or whatever else would just say though that you know Walking into the paddock, despite knowing everybody, despite knowing all the drivers and team owners and whatnot, it's just interesting to also acknowledge it's not someone they necessarily were comfortable opening up to when he was independent. And I certainly don't think they're going to, uh, with him now as a part of, you know, the series on the editorial side. So who knows, um, That's why I think having someone like Mark Robinson in that role, who was trusted, and I'm not saying that folks were just spilling all the secrets to Mark, but just be interesting. Um, This is certainly the best role for Kurt. Just don't know. uh, We'll see. We will see. I wish him well. I hope things work out for him. Um, Yeah, This has just been a a weird thing. They also let Pat Caporale go, and I just will say that this is The biggest head scratcher of all. Um, Yeah. She's amazing. She is amazing. And she's one of us. Meaning from the paddock. Someone who, talk about trust. Talk about someone who is received and regarded just like any mechanic, truck driver, whatever else. I mean, she's as polished and professional as they come. Just When Pat comes around, because she's been around cart, champ car, you name it, been part of this family for a really long time on the inside. When Pat comes around, it just feels like family. And so I know that's how she was regarded. I know that's how she was treated and received. And so, yeah, I don't fully understand why Pat or Mark are no longer part of IndyCar's communication department um, in s- offering some unsolicited suggestions earlier this year on the topic of, huh, if you were to shuffle the, uh, the roster here, who would be indispensable and who would not? Um, I know I wasn't the only one suggesting that the two you have to keep, no matter what, Pat and Mark, Arnie, for sure, because he is their multiple tool, do anything, do the dirty work, do the whatever work. Arnie's always their most helpful guy possible. Um, And super happy that Arnie has been retained. I think he'll be there for the rest of his life, hopefully. But, yeah, Uh, timing, a little questionable. Uh, Their decision on who was kept and who was let go, not my department not in charge obviously um i think ziz is going to do great things i think some of the people he has brought in who i don't know but he is very high on he believes they're going to be able to advance things there that's great Uh, i hope they do i hope mark finds work um i've heard that he could have some work offered from a rival racing series recognizing that his availability makes no sense and we want to use him right away uh i know the same thing has happened with pat and yeah so can't tell you why indycar felt that mark and pat were disposable can't tell you why they felt that kurt was someone who would be able to do mark's job better um or be held in higher regard or have more trust uh but you know it's (laughs) every two or three years there tends to be a bit of a revolving door in some capacity in indycar's communications department uh the amount of people that i've known who have run it and who no longer run it or who have worked in it and no longer worked in it um if you think indycar teams have high turnover whether it's driver or crew or whatever else i'm I can state that, no, actually the place, the joint with the highest turnover, at least while I've been doing this, has been IndyCar's communications department. So I wish the uh, the new folks steering the ship well. I have confidence they're going to do some very good things and obviously hope that those who are no longer there um, find happiness in employment doing something else. Uh, let's see. Nate Falkowitz says, Marshall, are there any restrictions on teams having technical relationships with non racing organizations? He says companies, universities, etc. I saw something about some CFD work that NASA did for Brian Herter's team back in the day, I was curious if that kind of thing still happens these days. Are teams free to collaborate with whoever they want? I can't think of any well. No, I guess the direct answer is no, Nate. There's no restriction, but I also can't think of how in a free society there would be any way that IndyCar could restrict one independently owned business from working with another independently owned business or governmental agency or otherwise. So since every team is indeed owned by someone other than IndyCar, Uh, and those teams do not by contract or anything else give the series full control over decision-making power for those teams, yeah, I mean, there's nothing stopping um, anyone from working with whomever. I think the thing you raise here, which is the, the best part of the question, I don't know why it doesn't happen more often. I don't know why teams, IndyCar teams, isn't limited to IndyCar teams, by the way, any professional racing team, is not out trying to look at relationships and explore relationships on the technical side, management, infrastructure, IT. I think there's so many alliances that could be had. Could there be sponsorship aspects as well? Possibly, very possibly so. But, yeah, I'm with you. I think one thing, since this is an IndyCar show, that IndyCar teams do an exceptionally poor job of for reasons that I don't grasp and would certainly be to their benefit if they were to change, is to say, huh, so we want to know more about aerodynamics. Who are the best? Who are the ones that would know more than less than we do? And what are some of the non-traditional places to go? Why? Well, in racing, those resources are known. There are very few secrets in terms of, oh, this company, this person, Everybody knows everybody in that regard where I, and so as a result, the gains and new insights tend to be somewhat limited where I think your point here, Nate is brilliant is, huh? So we're looking at ways to do things better or faster or cheaper or more efficiently. What are some of the names or industries or people or businesses, whatever outside of racing that lead in those regards and why aren't we speaking to them why don't we have a a quote external relationships engineer who's doing as you mentioned hey nasa they're kind of smart they know stuff about air and fluid dynamics and all kinds of things let's see if they might be able to engage with us on something could it be military contractor again i don't know i don't know but i'm i have to believe that boy uh, a lot of companies like the idea of racing like the idea of competition intensity short turnaround times excellence just so many things there's so many easy ways to explain how getting involved with a racing team if it's just a technical alliance or maybe even more is would be mutually beneficial i think so the vast majority I don't know what 99% maybe of the efforts from teams to reach out and contact businesses outside of motor racing strictly has to do with money. How can we get you in B2B straight up dollars, advertising promote, we're going to put on a good show. You're going to go to our hospitality suite. You're going to sit in the stands again. We got that. But on the competition side, yeah, Nate, I don't know why there isn't a greater investment in trying to seek out and find relationships that would indeed uh, benefit the team's overall performances let's see let's go to ryan terpstra again he says just wanted to point out and, and uh, thanks for the person who mentioned the let's go racing channel on youtube which allowed him and some others to watch pato awards japanese super formula debut he said for the listeners who are curious how he fared and i did actually happen to I didn't watch it live but did watch uh, the race um afterwards he said wondering if folks want to know how he fared on his debut said he was eighth quickest in a second practice session uh then it rained hard for the rest of the weekend he spun installed and, and was last in qualifying without setting a time said he started 20th and last uh and took his time in some genuinely epic conditions The the rain at fuji was just huh <laughs> couldn't uh, there were times where you just could not see any the cameras could not pick up anything through the spray ryan mentions that pato picked off cars one at a time and uh When he was given some free track, he was able to show some legitimate pace, said he outperformed his teammate, or the other Red Bull junior driver, I should say, in the race, and finished 14th. He says, uh, former F1 driver and uh, Toyota LMP1 driver Kamui Kobayashi started next to him in 19th and was the only driver to make up more spots from their starting position. Uh, Given the conditions, it was a solid performance. So, yeah, definitely, definitely uh, good on Pato, and yeah, uh, thrown in thrown in here with no chance to test or otherwise and spinning off and qualifying certainly didn't help. But yeah, I think he has, I think he will start to show the Red Bull development folks that there's really truly something here. They need to keep working with. Uh, Ryan also says during the Toronto broadcast, he mentioned that Colton Herta has taken some phone calls from interested party in Europe without going into any detail that may burn bridges or sources. Would you be able to expand on where that interest is coming from? I just haven't had a chance or time, Ryan, to reach out and get further info on that. But I would say that any enterprising Formula 1 team, knowing that Formula 2, Formula 3, GP3, whatever, definitely some good, good drivers coming along. I haven't seen any this year that have made me say holy cow that person's going to come out and retire lewis hamilton retire pick whomever uh i haven't seen anyone that makes me think wow earth shattering and so i think it would be only natural for a formula 1 team probably not a mercedes probably not a ferrari more mid pack someone just considering maybe a haas knowing that they're driver lineup tends to be a week by week calamity um, in and among the own calamities they create on the team side. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if there were some smart Formula One team saying, hey, so here's a very young driver, very young driver, who has significant European open wheel experience, who is now excelling as a rookie in a small and underfunded team. One though with a very key and vastly influential technical partnership. boy, Uh, testing a 19 year old certainly seems like a really smart thing to do so i'm going to follow up on this but yeah uh, i mean dtm or wec or otherwise you know those would be cool but uh, those that would just be extracurricular activities for colton in terms of serious inquiries someone wanting to know his stat stature status availability and whatnot I would have to believe that uh, it would only be more on the leading edge European open wheel, that being F1. Rob Ball, love this question. I've thought about it beforehand. I've actually thought about making this very same call. It says, MP, any chance to find folks at Toronto Motorsports could make a shirt that just says, hashtag me personally on the front and has your cartoon on the back? I would absolutely buy one and wear it to the next race I attend. Also, maybe have a portion of the proceeds could go to the GoFundMe page for your wife. Just a thought. Yeah, I I think we'd sell three of them and I'd probably be the, you'd be one and I'd be the guy buying two of them. I think I'm the only person that I know of hashtag me personally who just is driven nuts by folks who say me personally because it's a redundancy Uh, instead of just saying I like something folks say what well, me personally i like it well me personally you impersonally i mean <laughs> we get it me just say i i like this thing i hate this thing me personally i like this okay i get folks just fall into it you hear it and then you can't stop saying it so anyways it drives me a little bit nuts just like folks uh, but along the line of sayings that drive mp insane and i also love that the hashtag me personally is also uh led off by the letters mp uh i don't know rob should i expand this to other thoughts of doing a hashtag front nose t-shirt because that's the one that drives me the most insane of all more on the sports car side if not exclusively on the sports car side hashtag front splitter also drives me insane there's only one splitter on the car it's at the front you don't have to say front just like the nose there's no rear nose it's never been a rear nose ever nothing that i believe in the existence of life on the planet earth has ever had a rear nose much less an open wheel race car therefore you don't have to say front to denote where it exists It only exists in one place. It's at the front. Therefore, you don't have to say it's there because it's nowhere else. It's just the nose, but hashtag front nose. The front splitter one, the rear diffuser is another one. There's only one diffuser. It's at the rear. Don't have to say rear diffuser. The engine cover, I think that's another one. Again, I'm just kind of spewing out the things that drive me mad. And now you all know how to drive me mad if you didn't already. Taking off the front engine cover, taking off the rear engine cover. Again, unless it's got two engines in it and they're at different ends of the car, we don't, we get it. It's the engine cover. Anyways, it's just kind of a trap that some folks fall into. And it's funny. And I even love the fact that at times, not often. Uh, I'd be lying if I said it. it was a frequent thing, but I have had at times pretty funny where, you know, I'm doing a little bit of broadcast stuff on TV, certainly doing radio and a lot of other stuff over the years. I do love when I get notes from whomever afterwards, like, man, I caught myself as I was starting to say front nose and I couldn't stop it. And the first thing was, you i thought of you and how you were going to be yelling at the tv going damn it brian till or whomever else you know better than that so i love the fact that at least i've kind of my displeasure for these kind of silly redundancies or silly calling outs of things where you just you don't have to it's the nose it's the engine cover it's the diffuser it's a splitter there's not two of them on the car they're only in one place It kind of falls into the me personally thing. It's saying the same thing twice. Anyways, so sorry, little soapbox moment here, Rob. I love it. I love the idea. I don't think it would sell much of all at all. Uh, It'd be easier for me to just take a 20 out of my own pocket and give it back to myself in terms of proceeds. Uh, But yeah, me or maybe, maybe we just need to do a shirt with all of the sayings that drive me nuts and then i think i'm just going to be bombarded with folks saying them to me constantly uh just to get a rise out of me which honestly that's one of the things i love about life is getting rises out of people so folks getting a rise out of me through a t-shirt maybe that's the way to go i think you're onto something here all right our final question goes to michael Mueller. i'd mentioned a while ago that we had two Display panel questions. says, MP, I know some fans are disappointed that the IndyCar number panels aren't working as advertised. When you look at the renderings of the new AeroScreen design, the mounting points on the roll hoop are in the exact spot that the number panels currently are mounted since the panels can't go on the roll hoop. Once the AeroScreen is mandated, I don't see why IndyCar would spend any more money trying to fix a system they won't be able to use next year anyway. So great question. Great question to close with of the many things I love about my weekly IndyCar show. It's that while I tend to think, I think of a lot of the things that I should be and that I'm a smart person. I love the fact that no man, I'm reminded every week, there's some really awesome angles and considerations that just fly over my head. This being one of them, Michael. So thank you. It never occurred to me i I didn't catch it didn't think of it. who knows why, but interesting one yet again, yet another question, so now we need to figure out how we might extract an injured driver or possibly someone like Robert who, if he were able to race with hand controls while still working to regain the use of his legs, how we would get him out of the car in a timely fashion with a restrict with restricted access points to the cockpit. I now need to start inquiring about, hey, number panels, Uh, so how, where, when, uh, what do you think? I don't know. I would say, this is not meant to be a rant, I'll keep this super brief because I need to go and do other things. This would be a prime opportunity for IndyCar to do one thing they have not done, period. I have been pushing for it, I have mention this to IndyCar's leadership uh, the last two administrations, at least, if not three. IndyCar needs to open up its mindset about electronics. The current contract with Cosworth, which provides dashes data systems, you name it, it's great. They worked on it from a cost standpoint. What package can we come up with that is going to cost the least amount that we can make spec? And that's going to help teams, in theory, from a budgetary standpoint. Got it. That needs to go away with the next chassis. Needs to be abandoned altogether. Not because I want to see costs go way up for teams, but what I want to see is opportunity. And the opportunity for, you might have heard me say this before, for Andretti Autosport to reach out to Amazon, the ability for carlin racing to reach out to ibm uh companies that play with tech you know i realize we're talking amazon maybe and i know they're not like a phone manufacturer but whether it's a kindle they have their computing system uh services and such they're becoming much more of a tech company than just you can buy toilet paper and get it shipped overnight in a cardboard box hey go explore the relationships head here to silicon valley and talk to a dozen different companies about electronics, data, and general information presentation, sponsorships, alliances, something. Open up that door, IndyCar, and open it up now. Biggest problem being faced in IndyCar, and has been for a couple of years, finances. Finances. Teams do not have enough money, period. There's not enough coming in through sponsorship on an average. There's some teams better off than others. I get that. But as a whole, there's not enough money coming in to teams to be really confident that they can be in business for many, many, many years to come. We've also had a dwindling of funded drivers bringing budgets. Dad's super zillionaire gives me $5 million a year to hand to an IndyCar team so I can drive it. That's coming down. Maybe I'll be writing about this, I don't know, weeks, whatever, sometime soon. We've had a dynamic this year that we've seen where there are more drivers capable of doing partial seasons than, boy, I can really remember. And it's only going to increase as I'm talking to young drivers wanting to come in From the road to Indy and whatnot, even Ryan Norman in his interview had mentioned, yeah, you know, um, I'm hoping to do partial schedule. This is a kid who's actually carried among the best sponsorship branding of anyone in Indy Lights. We're just seeing fewer people with money to bring into the series to drive. And sponsors, while we're seeing some more new names coming in, there's n- almost nobody that's saying, I'm totally comfortable, totally flush. I'm good. Don't need any more. Not at all. You take away IndyCar's little over a million-dollar-a-year leader circle from everyone's budget, and there are some teams that would become part-time overnight. So just getting to this central point of the data systems and electronics on these cars as we come to the next, what the Dallara DW22 Got to open it up. Can't do spec. Can you cannot do a spec system. Doesn't mean you can't use Cosworth. Doesn't mean teams can't buy or shouldn't be able to buy or use whatever Cosworth sells. This has nothing to do with Cosworth. Could be any. Could be Motec. Could be any current vendor. What IndyCar needs to do, must do, for its self preservation, for its teams, is remove the spec angle, so that. And I, who knows if they would do it, but again, Samsung partnering with Sam Schmidt, um, Apple iPhone partnering with AJ Voight. Again, just pick the variety of companies, Google partnering with, so we have wraparound cockpit displays, touchscreen. I don't know. Does it have to be on the steering wheel? No, it certainly does not. What kind of things can we do to marry and integrate modern day mobile phone, tablet style vendors, producers into the IndyCar series to develop, to give them a chance to learn more, to try things, to have a collaborative relationship with teams? We would hope as well a financial arrangement, but if nothing else, the ability to promote all of these different brands, Samsung, Samsung using their engagement with IndyCar, Sprint, AT&T from a service provider. Again, run down the list of all the various options. Verizon, you think about how we use telecommunications today, mobile telecommunications, how it has drastically changed over the past 25 years, how IndyCar has, by and large, never adapted itself. To be connected to those industries, obviously we've had some communications providers that have been partners. We've, you know, we've had the Verizon Series title sponsor. We had Northern Lights when I used to work in the IRL, which was a, a search engine company. We've had again some strands, but not something where teams are actually allowed to, at least in this this current IndyCar Series era, go out and make these partnerships. And hopefully, enrich themselves financially through these relationships, bring greater, wider marketing and promotions, national advertising from major carriers, major tech companies, trumpeting their relationships. I know that NTT is the title sponsor, I know that Aero Electronics is heavily involved with the Schmidt team. These are all great things. At no point in time should any of that be a restriction. And at no point in time going forward, can IndyCar look at its electronic systems and come up with a spec system that must be used that absolutely prevents real, meaningful collaborations and hopefully business relationships so that, again, a Google says, "Oh, cool! We could actually do a display." in an IndyCar or maybe multiple, who knows? Hey, we're going to try this here. And on this team, we've done a partnership with or partnership plus sponsorship. We're going to try something different and see who likes what. I mean, this takes IndyCar into a different world and knowing how good teams have come uh, when it have become in business to business type arrangements. um, This is an area that unlocks a lot of potential prosperity for everyone. And so all that comes back, Michael, to your question about display panels. I don't know how it would be integrated. I'm going to have to ask next year, if at all, but knowing that we have a new chassis coming, not too long after the arrow screen is implemented. This to me really strikes an overall topic that needs to be addressed so that who knows along with potential potential, data screens, touch screen, voice activated. I don't, Yet you know, again, I, who knows all the things that could be done in the cockpit to capture data, transmit data, present data. This is what these companies do every day. Now, how can we do that in a racing environment? Maybe they all work with Cosworth or some other vendor, a, cho, a preferred IndyCar vendor. That helps facilitate some of the things. Look, you know, damper oscillation is not something I would expect um, an and iPhone tech department to know a lot about, nor would they want to have to get up to speed on that. Look, it would make total sense to have some sort of technical conduit, racing expertise on the electronic side from whatever vendor to maybe be an official bridge to help make these things happen and facilitate them but you can't lock it down. What you can, though, is start to think about, hey, Michael Mueller's got a great question. So this new safety device is possibly going to make, using these panels that have kind of been a little shitty or not always working, uh, who knows? Now the actual real estate is going to be taken up by the safety device. What do we do? Do we replace it? Hey, what if that was something? Good Lord, crazy idea. (laughs) Companies that make small displays that... Present a lot of information, some of them in 4K, some of them in this, some of them I mean again, think about the phone you stare at of your tablet all day, what it can do. Imagine something totally crazy. Like the people that make those things, that develop the technology, the people that make the bits inside that make these things possible, whether it is the screen itself, whether it is the circuitry, the processors, the whatever. Imagine those people being allowed to work with teams in the series to make their own displays. Who has the best display? I don't know. Let's take a look. This one rocks. All right, cool. Well, there's kind of a perfect promotional thing, man, the pick, whatever it is, the Samsung displays on the, uh, the Meyer shank team, (laughs) those are the of all the ones going by i can see that the clearest and cleanest is the best colors it has the most this that and the other well man if you're trying to promote the quality of your small screen technology hey wacky idea why not allow that so again try not to make this too much of a soapbox here but michael you've cracked open a great one i just continue to cross my fingers that IndyCar realizes that of all the things to lock down and try and control from a cost standpoint, the data side, the dash, data acquisition, not the ECU and engine control. That's a very super specialized thing, really meant for engine manufacturers to be involved in. I genuinely don't want, don't want, um, too many people getting into there. Cause I think that I can't see the reward or value in that, but I sure can see Michael, the value of saying, you know what? Um, uh, why don't we try and open up really big potential business opportunities, even bigger promotional opportunities of seeing Indy car and its teams and drivers included in massive national marketing campaigns. It's, you turn on the television you live stream, whatever, almost guaranteed one of the ads you're going to see is related to some sort of cellular company, phone technology, buy the new thing with the this that does that. Um, anybody at IndyCar who believes this isn't a crucial adjustment to make, Uh, I think they might have a hard time justifying their salary or existence going forward because I've been railing on this for a while. I'm not claiming that I have any kind of this is the thing that's going to save IndyCar. No, but as long as you just think about locking down something like this that has so much potential just because it's easy and cheap, um, man, you're just choking the life out of the sport when there should be absolute wealth and promotions happening in this one area of technology that connects just about every single person in the world. All right, I'm done. You guys have sent in five pages of questions. Thank you. It takes a long time to get through them. And like I said, uh, if it's just real simple stuff, hey, what car number is care I'm going to be using this week? It's easy one to answer. Some of these, uh, they're a little more conversational. And hopefully you enjoy that aspect of how we close the show. All right. I am Marshall Pruitt. This is the Marshall Pruitt podcast. And our week in IndyCar brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, Motorsports.com, where you can get very soon, you can pre-order now, those Robert Wickens speedy wheelchair hats. And also our friends at Bell Racing Helmets USA. Look forward to speaking to you next week after we know who is the newest winner of the Iowa 300.